Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. What you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Uh, this particular episode was originally aired August 22nd of 2013. Boy, I'm old. Uh, this is a discussion between myself and Mark Radulich about the HBO series Oz. Uh, we were coming up on the end of Breaking Bad, and I was going through a look at all the different kind of groundbreaking, anti-hero, darker television shows that I felt deserved some discussion, and Oz certainly is on that list. And because it's Mark and I, we, Mark and me actually would be the proper grammatical use of that. Uh, we talk for a while because he and I can get going and Oz is a, an interesting topic to discuss, especially in the vein of which I was looking at for Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. So, Thank you for listening to these re-airs. Much appreciated. Uh, please continue to support the podcasting network however you can. That's also always appreciated. I will throw this to myself and Mark in the past and I hope you all enjoy the show. Welcome to the first part of the epic six-week countdown to the end of Breaking Bad. 
very sad time for all of us who enjoy the series because it's an awesome series. Now, what are we doing here? In, pre- in preparation for this particularly auspicious event, I, the host of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, am hosting a multi-part countdown wherein we examine all of the bad guys of television, the anti-heroes, the good guys gone bad, some of our favorite just scumbags from all the great television shows, and this will culminate the final week, the last episode of Breaking Bad, and later that week I'll do a retrospective on it, and we here at 411 Mania, which is where I tend to base myself out of, are planning something the same night, or night of or night after, I forget exactly which, I'll have to look it up, a big Google Hangout for those of us who are fans of the series, and it will be awesome, I'm a huge fan of that show, Brian Cranston's the man, I feel nothing, I feel nothing else has to be said about that, but we have to start somewhere, so tonight we are starting with a groundbreaking series, kind of relatively speaking, HBO original programming, the TV series Oz, which focuses on life inside the fictitious Oswald State Maximum Security Penitentiary. They changed the name because no one was penitent, according to Augustus Hill. And you don't have to listen to me talk to myself about all of the various characters for the next two hours. I have a guess. I have guests lined up for all the shows they have scheduled for this particularly epic countdown. This week, he's been here before for my first ever show discussing the Terminator. He was here for the Hulk, one part of the two-part Hulk series. He's a big fan of Oz. He's a big fan of The Wire when I get to that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mark Radulich. He's back. Mark, welcome back to the show. We not only, you not only have volunteers for every episode of your Good Guys Gone Bad series leading into Breaking Bad, we were tripping over ourselves, rushing to be able to do this, okay? We, uh, by myself, Pat, Sean, whoever else is, is, is joining in, we were shoving each other out of the way, going, no, me, me, I'm doing this one. And um, because you, you had talked about it with me first, I uh, I got to be I got Oz all to myself and let me tell you you know what I've always wondered see right there you couldn't see it because it's radio but I just did the glob of oil gesture. <laughs> you know it's sad they never actually settled that particular debate. <laughs> <laughs> well at that point uh, Puerto Rodriguez had, had uh, gone with the Schwinn so it was sort of a moot point and I'm guessing Peter Shabetta really didn't have much of an opinion on the matter besides. Um, two plus two equals shoes. <laughs> well, considering where he wound up, yeah, that was probably about... <laughs> that poor guy wound up more loopy than Alistair Overeem after his fight with Travis Brown for various MMA fans. Or that poor schmuck that Bobby Lashley, John Ott, that Bobby Lashley, like, beat into a coma. <laughs> yeah. All right, where do you want uh, to begin, sir? You're driving. I'm just the passenger on this journey. Well, I figure we talked a bit about this before we went on the air, but... Since we're kind of focusing on good guys who go bad as opposed to just kind of the pure sociopaths, although those are fun too, and we, I do want to talk about the sociopaths of Oz because two of my favorite characters ever in television are Ryan O'Reilly and Chris Keller. And it was seeing Christopher Maloney as Chris Keller that made me think, when they announced he was joining Man of Steel, I couldn't help but somewhere inside of me went, please give him Lex Luthor, because I'd seen what he can do with that kind of a character. Sadly, it wasn't to be, but... Now there's now there's rumors that Brian Cranston wants to play Lex Luthor, although apparently his wife isn't too happy about him staying bald headed for the experience. But either you know, 
I would have been happy with him, but since we kind of look at good guys who make stupid decisions and are corrupted by the prison system, although that, that's a pretty substantial theme without throughout Oz, we kind of have to start with Beecher, I think, because he's more or less the protagonist. He's kind of the everyman from whose his eyes are the ones that a lot my demographic tended to view the show through. I mean, I'm sure there were people out there who could identify with Kenny Wangler or a few very disturbed people who, you know, thought that Ryan O'Reilly was how life is supposed to be. But for a lot of people, Beecher was kind of how we viewed... He was our eyes within the system there, so I think we kind of have to start with him and his crazy facial-haired odyssey. If you wouldn't mind kind of starting us, introduce us to Beecher and kind of his brief, his where you go with him, your likes and dislikes about the character and whatnot. Well, let me begin with, you're absolutely right. Uh, Beecher is the most sympathetic inmate in the ser- in the Oz series, and while he does some pretty inhumane things, he does them as a reaction to the things that are being done to him. They, you know, He's also written as both sympathetic and tragic. Uh, Beecher is a lawyer. He comes from a fairly well-to-do family. Um, he's a drunk, and... Uh, he doesn't like himself. He's got a, a fractured uh, ego, to say the least. And he gets and his, and he drowns his to help that. Yeah. Um, he has a uh, so he drowns his fractured ego in booze, and this all leads to an unfortunate accident where he kills a little girl, and he gets made an example of at, in the court system, where he does the maximum penalty for I think manslaughter, and he's the duck-out-of-water character. While everybody else in Oz is integrated into the criminal justice system in some way, shape, or form, repeat offenders, lifelong criminals, etc., he's one of the few who, and who, that the series focuses on who has never been to prison before, really is not a part of that world. He's not even a criminal attorney of any kind, um, and gets you know thrown into this universe that he now has to uh, be almost reborn again, and so it's a, it's a great vehicle for getting people who, and, and I've said this before, most people have no clue what the American justice system is, is specifically the, um, the our, our system of incarceration is like. They don't know how many prisons are. People don't know the difference between jail and prison. Um, you know, they don't know the difference between federal prison and state prison, and they certainly don't know what it's like for the people living in there. Um, I do. I work in the system. so. Uh, Oz has always held a special place in my heart because I've always had a fascination with this particular area of life. But most people don't, and they don't want to know, and it's kind of just to get the criminals off the street and out of my face and don't build a prison in my backyard. That's pretty much the extent of it. So what Oz did was Oz took you into that world, and you rode w- and you saw it through the eyes of Beecher. Um, so a little bit about Beecher, likes and dislikes and such. Uh it's interesting to watch a character be completely broken down and then remade, be remade in uh, one entire season. So, spoiler alert for people who don't know, Beecher is immediately... Uh, when, when you first are introduced to uh, Oz, the, um, Oz refers to Oswald State Correctional Facility or State Penitentiary, which is a maximum uh, security prison, state prison, level four. Which is, you know, the, you know, some of the some of the baddest of the bad, but not all of them are the bad, basically. In any case, within Oz is an experimental unit uh, that is supposed to be focused on rehabilitation. Ha ha ha! And that's run by. And as part of this rehabilitation, let's take in the career neo-Nazi and the sociopath who cut off a man's head, uh, 
police officer's <laughs> head with a machete while the man was holding up his badge going, I'm a cop, please don't kill me. But, hey, Adebisi is, he was the original honey badger. He don't care. No. And, and we will get to McManus and his flawed logic, uh, I, I assume, soon enough. But uh, getting back to Beecher. Oh, yeah. We'll get uh, to uh, poor Timmy McManus and his parade of semi-attractive women and self-destruction and liberal blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So um, within Oswald State Penitentiary is what they call uh, this experimental unit that Tim McManus runs, and it's called Emerald City, and that is your major focus point, focal point of the show. Most of the almost ninety percent of the scenes in the series take place within Emerald City. Okay, so they put Beecher in Emerald City because he fits the criteria for somebody who is rehabilitable, and uh, you know it, it's almost, almost cliche. First thing they do is they throw him into a cell with I think out of easy. Yeah, he's fully the original it, yeah. Yeah. You know, and immediately he's taking his stuff and going through things and bullying him, and it's like every cliche you've ever seen in the world. Um, Schillinger then uh, sees this, sees an opportunity to strike, and he comes across as initially as a hero, you know, as a white knight saving uh, Beecher from the big dangerous black man. Yeah, I find out. That, I maintain that the way they introduced Schillinger was absolutely brilliant. Especially, oh, yeah. I mean, looking back on it, if I knew then what I know now, it would, I mean, not just within Oz, but it would be kind of obvious that, no, he's, there's no altruistic people within the, you know. Well, that was the funny thing about it. Did you, I don't know if you watch Family Guy, but there's a bit where, you know, um, I can't remember what the setup to this is, but, uh, oh, it's like, something about, like, Curious George gets molested or something like that, and he's like, he's like, no, don't go in there, George. Monkeys aren't supposed to drink Chardonnay. You know, that's what you feel like as, as a uh, fan watching this thing. No, Peter, don't listen to him. He's, he's just going to rape you, you know? It, yeah, it, and that, that's the thing. which is, of course, what happens. But my experience mm-hmm. with J.K. Simmons to this point was, see if I can remember, his recurring role as um, the doctor on both Law & Order and Law & Order SVU. I did not watch Oz Live. I watched it actually on YouTube. Someone had the entire series posted up on YouTube for a while in the days of, like, 10-minute clips. So, but I but I watched the whole thing, and, again, my experience with him was that, and I think at the time he was also doing great things as J. Jonah Jameson in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. So I had never seen movement. him. Oh, he absolutely was. I If they go, I hope they bring him back for the next, you know, this reboot, because he did such a great job. But my experience with him was, you know, not necessarily neo-Nazi, borderline sociopath, rapist, militant, anti-drug, you know, crazy guy. So when he, so when Beecher has moved into his cell and he goes, you know, you like my tattoos? And he shows off you know, the lightning bolts on his arms. And, you know, if you don't see it coming, it, that's kind of when it starts dawning on you like, oh, crap, this is a mistake. <laughs> the thing of it is, is, you know, the audience is just as naive as Beecher, and I, that was the connection that I was I was trying to make and explain is, if um, you know, unless you're already in this field, this world in some way, shape, or form, you don't know lightning bolts mean neo-Nazi. I mean, everyone knows the swastika does, but that's not what you're seeing. You're seeing lightning bolts, and that becomes a reoccurring thing. Um, but, the, but the point that I was making was you have no idea where any of this is going. You don't know who to trust, and that was the brilliance of the show. Um, but yeah, I, I had no, I didn't watch a tremendous amount of Law and Order, so I didn't know who any of these people were for the most part. When Evan Seinfeld shows up from Biohazard and uh, and Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters fame was in the show, those, those are the two people I knew. Um, so I suppose I knew Rita Moreno as well. In any case, everyone um, knows Rita Moreno. Yes. 
Saint Rita Moreno, as uh, George Collin referred to us. So you, um, so he saves Beecher, and that's one of the major story arcs: is Beecher being completely broken down and then uh, discarded by neo-Nazi uh, Schillinger, J.K. I said J.K. Rowling, J.K. Simmons. But what's interesting about Beecher is. Through him, you also see that there are, you know, some men, not all men, but some men, if you push them too far, um, there's a great line in, in sort of the, the sister uh, to this show. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power. Loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Which is Orange is the New Black. It's not meant to be, but I'm calling it as such because a lot of the same themes, but it's dealt with in a much lighthearted manner. But Orange is the New Black is the one where the, uh, the, the uptown blonde woman goes to federal prison for a year for carrying a bag of, carrying a bag of drug money um, 10 years ago. And there's a great line in Orange is the New Black that says, the worst thing about prison is, is having to come face to face with the person you really are. And that's what you get with um, that underneath all of this other stuff was that, you know, was this incredibly broken uh, man who uh, was capable of so much destruction when, when put in the right set of circumstances. Uh, he's, he's, the, he's the most interesting and yet, and again, the most sympathetic character because, you know, you don't want to see this guy, this guy committed a terrible accident. You don't want to see him suffer and yet he does, and then he becomes this monster for a while. And even then, you're the whole time you're like, you know, you like you don't want him, like you want him to be the monster because you want him to eat the bigger monsters. On the other hand, you don't want to see him go so far that there's no coming back for him. So uh, he's probably the most interesting character of the entire show, which is weird because everyone, like I said, likes Ryan O'Reilly too. But Ryan O'Reilly is a completely conscienceless sociopath. Who with no redeeming values whatsoever, but he's the oh, come coolest. on, he's in love with Dr. Gloria. He's the coolest. Everyone wants to be Ryan O'Reilly because he's the coolest guy on the show. But again, there's absolutely not a single redeemable value in that human being as he's played by um, Dean Winters. Oh, Dean Winters, yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at the end of the series and. The show's been over for a while, but there are going. But if you haven't seen it, there will be some spoilers in this because we're talking full character arcs. When poor Cyril, I mean, there was a, there's a guy who just got shafted by life. I mean, not just. I mean, for those for those of you who don't know, I know I'm, we're dovetailing a little bit here away from Beecher, but Cyril O'Reilly is Ryan's. I think it's his younger brother. It might be his older. I forget exactly, but they're brothers. They're played by brothers, and he became mentally handicapped. While defending Ryan at Ryan actually was sleeping with a Italian mafia uh, mobster's girlfriend at a funeral, Cyril defended him from 
the attack that followed because they're Irish guys at an Italian funeral and no one likes Ryan O'Reilly. And he got hit over the head with something. There was irreversible brain damage. He wound up with the mind of like an eight-year-old. And Ryan convinces him to kill someone for him. Cyril then gets caught, comes to Oz, winds up killing a couple of other people. But he's, I mean, it's all, he's just above the level for his action. And at the end, he's executed. And I, at the end of the series, when that happened, I flashed back to the first episode and thought, you know, Dino really should have drowned him in the... <laughs> yes, had Woody gone to the police, this would have never have happened. I just mean, because in that, first ep- in that first episode, you kind of focus on Dino Ortolani and he dies at the end, but he and Ryan O'Reilly hate each other. It, it was actually his girlfriend that O'Reilly was banging at the funeral, I think. They get into an altercation in the bathroom, and... Dino nearly kills him by drowning him in a toilet. And at the end, I think, you know, poor Cyril could have gone on with his life normally if Dino had just actually gone through with it. Yeah, well, the whole show would have been different had Cyril O'Reilly not show up. But, you know, Cyril O'Reilly, it's not a character I I particularly wanted to focus on as far as good guys gone bad, because he, too, was, you know, he was was Ryan's bodyguard and he was in a gang. I mean, you know, there, there is no good gone bad there. You know, if you want to take it to the extension of, well, aren't a lot of these guys ostensibly good when they're children, but they're born in the terrible situation? No, we're not going there, okay? <laughs> no, no, we we don't want the philosophical discussion of are people born evil. That's a huge debate that will never right. really be solved. That kind of comes down to, you know, how you feel about things. But, no, yeah, I just wanted to bring it up that, you know, you know, I felt bad for Cyril in that respect, and you know, Ryan O'Reilly got interesting. You know, you're right, he's the coolest. He's the one who's always stirring the pot. He's like Machiavelli brought to life. Well, brought back to life because the guy did actually exist. But he's, but you know, there's not a whole lot of character change of character arc. He's, he's just really inter- It's really interesting to kind of watch him scheme. Is kind of the upshot right. of his character. He, he's the mo- he's the most interesting in terms of. Um, getting things, getting the plots going and getting people uh, riled up, as it were. But the only time he's ever vulnerable, the only time he's ever really hurt, is uh, a little bit when he gets breast cancer and then, you know, the stuff dealing with the imminent demise of his brother. You know, it's it's the one chink in his armor. It's the one thing where he, it's the one area where he truly feels pain. That's the one place... That is the one time that this completely guilt-free sociopath feels at least the least bit, the little bit of guilt over how his actions have caused his brother to be killed, which is something it's difficult for him to live with. Not a tremendous amount. Again, we're talking a sociopath here, but, you know, even in sociopaths, if you can't have at least a little bit of, you know, dramatic tension, then what in the hell are we watching this for? Yeah, I agree. So we were talking about Beecher, and I mentioned when I, you know, when I introduced him, uh, his crazy facial hair odyssey. That's because <laughs> his, his facial hair and his hairstyle in general evolves to kind of mirror the character very consciously changes it to kind of mirror his internal conflict and what's going on because he starts out he's very baby-faced clean-shaven gets humiliated raped abused by Schillinger and the neo-nazis and a lot of other people take advantage of including Ryan O'Reilly take advantage of poor Beecher and then at the end of the first season and into the second he grows this really bizarre he grows his hair out he has a goatee and pseudo wolverine mutton chops I mean, and he looks crazy, and by that point, he is fairly crazy. I mean, but you'll notice f- that as as he falls in love with Chris, he goes, he reverts back to fairly normal looking, and then after that, kind of falls apart. He grows this kind of like Amish only chin goatee that gives him kind of a old wise man 
you know, visage to you know, that that's kind of the first image that comes to head. He has a bit longer hair. He's got you know just the chin facial hair thing going, and he looks more kind of like an elder from a tribe, which at that particular point in time kind of fits his character too. Well, you know, Oz really is a microcosm from man's inhumanity to man. Um, you know, Oz is really a, a, a small little world where uh, people are just terrible to one another. And what you see with Beecher is, uh, you know, how that dehumanization affects him and what it ultimately does to people. You know, and I don't want to get off uh, completely off subject, but, you know, the whole concept of prison, at least in America, is a very fascinating thing because on the one hand, ideally, it's supposed to be a place of rehabilitation, which we both laughed at because we all know that it isn't. But, with, you know, but on the other hand, the reality of it all is whatever kind of criminal you walk in there, you'll be, a worse per- you'll be worse off for the experience by the time it's all over. You will be so much more broken, so much more useless to society, nine out of ten times. Sure, there are some people who are wired uh, well enough that you know their um, their ability to withstand all of this and become better people, it does happen. I'm not saying you know, it's 100 percent, but 90 percent, 99 percent of the people who go in who go through the American prison system will come out worse off for it. And it's mirrored in Beecher. That's that that's sort of what his job is: is to really show that in one foul swoop. And, you know, as you pointed out, kind of hilariously, it's shown in, in, in how he changes physically, you know, the different hair and um, the actions that he takes. I mean, in the first season, by the end of it, he's just, and I'm going to say this and people are going to be like, wow, your threshold for, for bad shit is really weird, but follow me on this. He only shits in Schillinger's mouth. Okay. That is the worst thing he'll do in, in season one is he'll hit Schillinger in the head with a barbell and then shit in his mouth. And then he'll threaten that he'll, you know, he's going to cost him his parole. That is it. And that sounds bad enough. But when you start to get into later seasons, when he's manipulating his own children against him, if someone were to turn my daughter against me and make her hate me, and then you know put her in a, put me in a position where I have to kill her, that is ultimately worse than me eating a bag of shit. Sorry, I'll take the shit over that. Now, I agree. I mean, okay, the first episode of the second season, uh, he. Oh, I, he, uh, it's James Robeson, actually, that attempts to force him to service him orally after the riot has happened, and he responds Wait, by... Can I talk about that for just a second? Can I just talk yes, about that please, for a second? Yes, please, go for it. Because when Jeremy and I were supposed to do an ep- a season-by-season season breakdown of Oz, and so I, I'd recently rewatched season two, and I remember thinking this when I saw the scene you're about to, you're, you're about to talk about. Uh, yeah, Robeson asks uh, Beecher to blow him, and Beach and, and Beecher bites the tip of his penis off. But that's not what's important to me in that scene. What's important is here we have these hardened men, these terrible murderers and rapists and burglars and whatnot, and Robeson has to be the most whiny person I've ever seen in my life. He's literally like, Beecher, Beecher, suck my cock. And like he doesn't want to do it. And he's literally whining to be like. There's no forcefulness of it. There's no. There's no bullying. It's well, he's he literally whining, whining and then he immediately begins punching him in the face. And be, well, I, he hits Beecher a couple of times to get him to do it. And Beecher then says, you know, fine, fine, all right. And but you know, to me, the that image that sticks me. in the image that sticks <laughs> in my head from that sequence is not Robson's face or him being carted off to the medical wing. It's Beecher being pushed naked into the hole, and before they close the door, he casually turns to the side and spits out part of... <laughs> yes, that, 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 that's fantastic. That's good fun. It's just, I want to go back to the whining for a second. If you're, look, if you're going to demand another man blow you in prison, be a man about it. Don't whine. 
See, your dog agrees. Yes, she does. Abby. Yes, she agrees That's all with I'm me. Saying. Now I agree, and uh, it's just kind of sad. But moving on <laughs> in good guys gone bad, kind of as a loose structure for this particular discussion. You mentioned in your first season retrospective with Jeremy Lambert on Thoughts in the Man Cave podcast zone that the way Tim McManus talks and everything, you view him as a social worker, which is what you do. I hope to God you're not that. You would never be that whiny and that. Forgive the expression, limp dick liberal about running a prison. Uh, no. Um, I outright threaten <laughs> certain individuals in the jail when they are um, abusing the system that is set up to protect them. I'm not going to get into details there, but suffice it to say, uh, I have had to tell many an inmate on many occasions, I don't give a fuck wh- uh, what you do. You do X, Y, Z one more time, I'll leave you in the hole until you either go to prison or get released, asshole. So, no. Which is the line to take on occasion. So if you, you know, kind of give us a quick McManus breakdown, and there's a couple of things I want to talk about him specifically as, like, a character, moments within the show that kind of really mess with him and turn him into kind of the jaded, cynical prick that he is at the end, as opposed to the naive, ball-cap-wearing, we're-going-to-rehabilitate Sanctimonious. He's so sanctimonious, it drives me crazy. One of the things that I've always... Uh, struggled with as a social worker is being surrounded by people who don't seem to understand how the world works, which is dangerous when you consider their profession is in dealing in how the world works and trying, you know, and trying to make uh, connections in various systems. As when I, in the brief time that I taught social work in uh, the local college here, I said, if you as a social worker don't understand systems and how they work, you're not doing your job correctly. Understand what is going on in the universe so that you know how to do your job effectively. And no one knew what the hell I meant by that. <laughs> Needless to say. Um, or suffice it to say. Yeah, McManus is a character that I struggled with because if this is how the world sees social workers, and I, and I know that social workers on film are generally represented poorly. You know, we're all... Uh, we're all like characters from The Simpsons or uh, Family Guy. You know, we take children and we put them in file cabinets. We uh, we have unrealistic expectations of people and we're completely just, ugh. In any case, yeah, McManus um, has an idea that he's going to take dangerous sociopaths and rehabilitate them so that they can uh, lead functional lives again. He's he's hopelessly misguided, but the, the worst part about it is that he's so sanctimonious, you know, um, there's a dramatic tension between the guards and him, and it's something that I experience myself because I have to show at least some degree of uh, compassion for the people that I'm working with or I'm not doing my job effectively. But the fact that I show compassion at all, the fact that I'm not a Nazi wishing death on every inmate I come across makes me the limp dick liberal of the place I work in. That's what we're dealing with, and that is what is shown in the uh, the tension between – in the interactions between – the CEOs, correctional officers, and McManus. And while he takes it a huge bridge too far, um, what he's trying to do is say that, that look, our, system, our correctional system views these individuals as just that, individual, with a degree of rights, with the hope that we can rehabilitate them, and that is what he needs to do. Um, Noble, horribly misguided. Um, we talked a little bit before about Adabizi, who is, you know, as we mentioned, he's the guy that chops the head off of a detective after he reveals the fact that he's a detective. He's a dangerous sociopath. There's no redeemable value in this man. Um, he was sentenced to life, and he probably should have been sentenced to death. And yet he's in the experimental unit meant for rehabilitation because McManus believes 
that uh, even guys sentenced to life need to learn how to live among other people. Oh, go fuck you. Okay? <laughs> no, they don't. Those are the people you keep on close management in a box so they can't hurt other people because that is what they do. And that is what, they, that is, what is shown throughout this show time and time again. The other thing that they talk about when you go through social work school is you never work harder than your clients. And in this particular case, your clients are the inmates. And McManus, in every season, especially the first, he's working harder than everybody, which is why, and this is the flip side of McManus, here you have this person who's so 110% committed to what he's doing and in, in, in in what he believes in that it leaves, no, it leaves nothing else for the rest of his soul. It leaves nothing else for the rest of his life. So in that, he makes terrible terrible life decisions he um he lashes out at the women that he dates he sleeps around he you know becomes obsessed with his work he's living in the jail um he's just a jerk you know so you have all, so they said with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky <gasps> No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, you know, you always have to keep uh, enough energy in your bucket uh, to take care of yourself. Because if you expend it all on your clients, you'll have nothing left for yourself. Well, if you'd like to know what that looks like, that's be- that's McManus. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned in your season one retrospective with Lambert a great line from Schillinger to McManus. McManus is interviewing Schillinger, and Schillinger's basically. You know, we we talked a bit about how Vern Schillinger is, you know, almost non-redeemable. He's a horrible human being. He rapes people for fun. He has one of Beecher's young children killed, like little kid, and the. The scene with Beecher kneeling in front of his son's coffin is just heartbreaking. He also has the wife killed, doesn't he? Well, it's, it, it's insinuated no, he that... Suicide. He insinuated to that, Beecher. That, he, yeah. he claims to Beecher that he got her, that he had her killed. In his own... My interpretation of that is he's just trying to mess with Beecher, because later on when he's talking with that uh, mayor and he's discussing what he's done to Beecher's life to make it more miserable, he says, no, I killed his father, which he also has died. I killed his son, but I can't kill him, or you know, I want him to live. Why? And, you know, he says it afterwards, and this other guy, I think it's the mayor he has this conversation with. I could be mistaken about that, though. When he says, okay, this guy Beecher's causing you problems, what have you done about it? He said, well, I... Kind of crippled him once. I killed his one of his kids, and I killed his father. But I haven't killed him yet, and now he's still causing me problems. And this other guy just looks at him like he's the biggest idiot on the planet. <laughs> like, you go through all this extra... But he doesn't admit in his own private time that he had Beecher's wife killed. I think she did just commit suicide. 
my interpretation okay. of that particular sequence of events. But he says to McManus, you know, you and now he's also again he's a neo Nazi, he's very militant, he's a racist, but he is very anti drug. I mean, he's in prison because he beat up a drug dealer who was trying to sell to his kids. That's why he's in prison, folks. Thank God he is because he's a horrible person, but in the grand scheme of things, if someone tried to sell my little brother's crack, I would probably knock the dog shit out of them too. But he's in there and he's very right wing, he's very conservative. So he and McManus butt heads just philosophically, and he says to McManus at one point, you know, oh, you freaking liberals, you're so sure about the way the world works, and as soon as you're proven wrong, you have no response, you have no backup plan, you just turn into these, you turn into a bunch of jackasses, which is exactly what happens to McManus over the course of the series. He has how he wants things to go, how he thinks things are and can be. He's constantly proven wrong, and he just devolves into this gigantic asshole. Yeah. When talking about McManus, there's a couple of things I specifically wanted to talk about because, like you said, his big deal is he wants to rehabilitate these people. He wants to make it so they can function in society again, and he tries to reach out to a couple of people to help them rehabilitate. Some of these guys are short-timers. The two that stick out to my mind, first he tries to... He begins a GED program within Emerald City, I think in the second season, second or third. Yes. And... So his goal, you know, if I can educate these people, maybe they won't have to go back to drug dealing and gangbanging and blah 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 blah. He tries to help specifically Kenny Wangler, who was actually 17. He was tried as an adult and was sentenced in an adult facility. Is where his story comes in there. So he is still just a teenager, has a kid by the, has a kid, but but you know, she happens to sneak drugs into the prison. And she does, yes. But so McManus tries to help him, and through the course of trying to help him, he discovers that first of all, poor Kenny Wangler is illiterate. I mean, he writes his name on the board, says, what does that say? And Kenny looks at it and goes, it says McDonald's, because he recognizes the M and the C. But he has no idea how to read, so McManus, late at night, then begins having him pulled out of his cell under different pretenses, but so he can basically teach him how to read. And he tries to reach out to Wangler. He gives him uh, the book up from slavery, which he says changed his life. Adebisi immediately uses it to hide drugs. But Wangler winds up, he goes to school, he does graduate, not able to attend the ceremony because he pulled something stupid right before it happens, but he tries, but he basically falls under Adebisi's kind of spell at that point. He becomes the stereotypical kind of pouting teenager in high school in class. And the fact that Kenny Wangler, as part of Adebisi's plot to get McManus fired, which is successful, is the one who says that, no, he molested me, knowing full well that even though it's a load of horseshit, just the accusation is enough to ruin someone's life at that particular, and arguably still is. So he's turned on by Kenny, who he tried to help, taught to read. He then finally gets one of his prisoners out of prison. I think two people in the history of that show actually leave the facility back into real life. One is Tobias Beecher gets early parole the last season, which he then immediately screws up by agreeing to help the man he's in love with, Chris Keller, deliver illegal pharmaceuticals. Keller drops a dime on Beecher and gets him brought back because he can't he somehow can't live without Beecher. He despite being a violent serial killing sociopath, and again Chris Keller's a fantastic character in a lot of ways, but despite it's all that him he's who now also a, killed a bunch of women, isn't it? I, I he's can't killed, remember. I mean, he started off with a he's being investigated by the FBI for a bunch of killing of homosexual men is the big kind okay. of investigative thing with him. But yeah, he's killed women. He's he's a serial killer. He's killed a bunch of people. 
He has absolutely no conscience. I mean, we can look at Ryan O'Reilly as being a sociopath, and under the definition of the word he is, Chris Keller doesn't give a fuck about anybody except himself and his immediate <laughs> gratification. Well, I was going to say, and, the term sociopath is not exclusive to Ryan O'Reilly, not in this show. Oh, not, in, not, not even. I mean, so, but Keller then rats on Beecher, and my big issue with that was not even for Chris Keller, after all he went through, Tobias Beecher would not roll through a fucking stoplight after that, is, was my big complaint there. They wanted to keep the character around, and it felt like, okay, we have to have him back in prison. This is something Keller would do. I'm not sure that's something Beecher would do. So he comes back well, to I prison think, for violating I, I his parole. Point, I was going to say, I think the point they were making with Beecher is that, um, you know... The, amount, the percentage of repeat offenders is ridiculously high. Well, well, that, but he, but in his particular case, keeping with the dramatic elements, he did it for love. Yeah. And we will do, as human beings, dumb things, things we should not do. I mean, look, at the very least, these are imperfect human beings. I mean, that's such a, a minimization. <laughs> that, that is such an understatement. I'm almost embarrassed yeah. having said it. But, it. but it really is. This is a show about extraordinarily imperfect people who... From an outsider's point of view, you're a nice point of view, we should have said, Beecher, you know, run. Run as far away from Keller as you can. But, Robert, have you ever dated anyone who was absolutely horrible for you and yet you could not pull away? There was something about no. them. And, I'm gonna, and, I ha- and I have something I'm going to say after this. but Not personally, no. no. <laughs> okay, well, some of us have. Uh, some of us have found that, uh, you know, those access to personality disordered, uh, you know, borderlines, that are awesome and exciting, terrible and violent, all at the same time. So, you know, guys who have experienced this know what I'm talking about. And they're like drugs. When they get in your system, they're there for life, and you spend the rest of your life resisting the urge to be around them, even though they're horrible for you. And that is... Yeah. And, and I, that, I haven't experienced that up. personally, but there is some mm-hmm. of that within my family tree, so I do understand kind of the... Yeah, the behavioral pattern there. But the point I was getting to there was the other guy who gets out is another guy who uh, McManus puts a great deal of stock in. Yeah, and that Bob. is Poet. the character of Poet. And Bob he makes Poet kind of the star of his uh, GED program. He graduates valedictorian. He gets him early release because his artistic work is so great, theoretically. And at the and then he then at He's at a book signing later when someone who he used to deal drugs with, he gets out and he doesn't immediately go back to selling drugs, which is a monumental miracle in and of itself. This guy tries to show up and kill him because he owes him money, they have some kind of beef, and Poet pulls his gun first and kills the guy in self-defense, but because he was still on parole, having the firearm as a violation, they get well, him for killing bought- the guy too. And then they, they what, immediately pre- yeah. and the what immediately precedes that is a conversation between McManus and another prison prison official or the governor or somebody like that, I forget who it is specifically, who points to him and says, you know, you've devoted all of this time, all of this energy to Emerald City, and it's got you nothing. None, you know, name one guy from your unit who has gotten out of the system and hasn't come back. And he says, Poet got out, and the guy kind of smiles and says, didn't you hear Poet's coming back? And it's just... There's these moments within the life of McManus where he thinks, maybe I've made a difference. Maybe I've won. Maybe I've got this small victory, and then the reality of the world kind of smacks him in the face and says, bitch, get back in line. I want to add that, and I'm going to, and I'm, and I'm going to um, go to one of my favorite lines from McManus. Fam- uh, favorite in a boy, you're an asshole sense, but it sums up the character. 
and I, and it's only half a line that I can remember, but it's the only one. But it's the half that's important. There's a scene in one of the seasons where he's uh, he's in um, isolation, and uh, all of the guys that are in isolation are people that he's had to deal with in some way that he's tried to work with. One of which is Aceveda. Um, or Mark Aceveda. No, 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 no. It's uh, no Aceveda is the actor's uh, Alvarez. Yeah, Alvarez. Yes. yes. Um, one is Alvarez. I think another one maybe um. Maybe Omar. Um, uh, Omar was in the hole characters. at that time. There was a. Um, there was also a white guy. Yeah. I forget there's a, there's his a name, whole... but uh, the former there's wasn't a... the former uh, guard in there too. Uh, the fr- Leo Glenn's uh, the warden. The warden's uh, best friend's son. So basically, he's his nephew yeah. type of thing. Was in there too at that time because he couldn't hack being a CEO and wound up getting arrested and thrown in solitary. Yeah. Uh, he but killed the other to... guy in the former cops unit. Was how he got there. Right. But he says, you know, there I am in, in, in the ISO, uh, surrounded by all of my failure. That's all you need to know about Beast. And this is what I mean by you can't work harder than, you, than your clients. He has taken on um, the lives of people he cannot control and made it his mission to try to make them better people. And when it doesn't work, and it's never going to work, that's an impossible task. Uh, he blames himself. You know, he martyrs himself. But then, but but it's through that martyring that allows him that in his mind rationalizes all of his other terrible decisions, the terrible way he treats people, um, you know, the bad things that he does, the lashing out, all of it he feels is justified because he, the Superman, tried to uh, help all of these people, and when they don't, and when he fails, it you know they're his failures, and it just makes me the character. <laughs> it really does. Well, it, it makes me hate him. Ugh. Yeah. I'll it take takes away the responsibility of the other people to, you know, when you admit something like that, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, this is someone I couldn't help. It's another thing to say, their mistakes are my personal failings. They have no responsibility for their actions. It's all my fault. I mean, just the amount of hubris that goes into that particular line of thought is staggering. Yep. The, um, it's funny, at the end of season one when they're dealing with the riot, uh, and one of the CEOs was going off on him, and he was like, you know, you know, this is all your fault. And you know, look, that's sort of specious logic as well. But um, all things considered, but um, you know, this is all Tim's fault because Timmy had to have a special unit, and Timmy thinks he can save him. And you know, it's it's, it's it was representative of a real, of a real philosophy um, that uh, even though our criminal justice system is set up to treat these people like human beings. It is much more preferable to the people who work with them day in and day out to treat them as cattle or less than cattle. Just throw them in a hole and kill them. And anybody that stands in the way of that is looked upon with absolute uh, derision. But he doesn't even hear him when he says it, which is even more hilarious. You know, the whole no, time he that, that yeah, he, yeah, he completely like, him. blows them off. Right. And in the meantime, he's, you know, he's just like, oh, my God, this is, this is Attica all over again. That's the conclusion that he comes to. He doesn't even hear what the man is saying. It's, it's actually quite amusing amongst the, uh, the the horror. Yeah, yeah, it is. But since we talked about the CEOs there and the fact that most of them view the prisoners as scum, since we kind of talk about we're focusing here on you know good guys who make bad decisions and the inevitable downward spiral that particularly leads to when you don't stop very quickly, there are some interesting uh, CEOs that go up that populate this particular prison as well. A lot of them as dirty as the criminals is kind of a trope of prison movies and television. But the first one that we're introduced to that 
you kind of think, okay, they can. This is a level-headed individual. Is Edie Falco's Diane Whittle, who is in charge of Emerald City, and she starts out very level-headed, very normalized. You know, she does her job. It's kind of a terrible job, you know, by and large, but she treats everyone fairly, and she is just trying to do the best that she can within her life. And then they're they go on strike. My understanding of the circumstances surrounding this. The prison union, the CO union, has been negotiating to get better pay or longer hours, something like because they're all working double shifts and overtime to make ends meet. They finally get what they want. Okay, you're going to make more per hour. Congratulations, but no more double shifts, and your overtime is limited to X number of hours per pay skip, per you know per time frame, and that which immediately kind of screws everyone who was involved in that because now they can't work double shifts or all the overtime they had been working to make ends meet. And now where they were formerly kind of scraping by, now they're kind of now they're kind of screwed. She begins smuggling cigarettes in for a biker. Used, I think she used to date, or she was no, I, she no, was no, no, involved no. With, She was involved with the, the biker club. The, here, a, here's the story. Please, I'm forgetting her husband was, of it. Her husband was get, was in the biker club. He was friends oh, yeah. with her husband, and he tried to sleep with her. Um, um, and the line she says is, well, you know, uh, I might have been able to do something about that had my husband actually been not high during the whole uh, – during your attempts to sleep with me. And he's in jail for life on a third strike offense. Uh, he and Schilling are actually good friends, but she starts smuggling cigarettes into the prison for him in order to – get extra money and make ends meet because she's a single mom and has all these financial hardships. And it's just, as soon as it happens, it's a bad decision, and it just goes downhill for her so quickly. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, of course, leads to... A couple of bad decisions regarding staffing in Emerald City, like Carl Metzger. But eventually we get McManus' friend, oh, I forget his name, who is put in charge of the unit and actually does a fairly level-headed job of taking care of things until Kearns comes along, but Martin Kearns is a whole other issue. So if you just the CEOs that stick out in your mind, I mean, there's a few of them that, you know, bear discussion more or less, and just, you know, which of them kind of stick out, which of them, you know, have the kind of quick fall of you make one bad decision and all of a sudden you're kind of screwed for life. Oh, Diane Whittlesley is, um, when we were talking about it before the show, I had actually forgotten about her, but the one person that actually sticks out in my mind as being um, somebody, by the way, the character you were referring to before, um, Sean Murphy, as played by Robert Murphy, yes. uh, Plahesse, Thank you. Um who's awesome, by the way, in, in the series, uh, as far as being like a tough but fair CO. Um, in any case, um, I think the, 
sort of the paragon of, of that, of the, the tough but fair uh, law enforcement official who um, who's a tragic character in himself. And you really see, you know, the, the, the imperfect humanity in this character is Warden Glenn. It's played by Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters fame. Um, yeah. I actually was really excited when he, because I was like, you know, I, I was always very sympathetic towards uh, towards him, you know, like he he had sort of this sort of tacked on role in Ghostbusters. So when he showed up as one of the stars of Oz, I was like, oh, good for Ernie Hudson. He still works. In any case, um, Warden Glenn is one of the most level-headed characters, but because of a series of circumstances that that befall him and his family, he goes on to make some terrible decisions out of sheer anger, just, just driven by emotion, and he struggles to sort of get the train back on the track again. Uh, and, and that's every, and that's every season. And he's, he's a man dealing with enormous pressure. You know, on the one hand, you have uh, COs who run the gamut of just being cruel to um, to incompetent. you know to untrust to incompetent to untrustworthy. I mean, when you look at the, at just some of the things that happen in season one, one sneaks a gun in, <laughs> the other one is allowing inmates to be murdered. You know, it just goes on and on and on. So he has to deal with that. He's dealing with a governor who's creating a time bomb in this prison by slowly rolling back um, the rights and privileges of the inmates, creating a situation where, you know, look, in the jail that I work in, they're not allowed to have TV. They don't have a tremendous amount of resources at all. So you have, you know, so what you get is food, which the jail provides and commissary, which you can buy if you've got money, um, some reading material and that's it. So you want to know what these people do all day long. They pick fights with each other. They steal whatever commissary they can find. Uh, from other people, and they pick fights. And, and then there's sexual abuse going on. But again, to, to get to my point, when when derived of sort of the uh, the things that, the distractions that life can provide you, doing podcasts, etc., cetera, uh, you will go to what's left. This is why people smear shit on walls. When you have nothing else, at least you've always got your own poop to amuse yourself. So, well, and I'm not Bill Alvarez can attest to that. Indeed. Um, that what? But you know, uh, well, let me just say this: Miguel Alvarez had a couple of when he was going through his kind of psychotic break in solitary confinement because he pissed off the warden and then escaped, got caught again. But he did escape at one point, courtesy of a great character. I don't think we'll have time to talk about, but Agamemnon Busmalis is pretty awesome. But Alvarez, you know, at one point, kind of thinks to himself, you know, your body is like two thirds water. So, you know, he thinks about fluids and he begins playing with his own crap because the poor guy is just so, like, sensorily deprived of anything that, hey, look, here's something different. Of course, he also gets the great line of, shut the fuck up, will you? I'm trying to masturbate here. <laughs> Which only, yeah, and, I, I imagine mean, you can, you will only hear that in prison. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like I said, when, when derived of every other pleasure on earth is always your own body um, and all of the joys that it can provide. So think about that if you ever go to prison or jail. Um, in any case, Warden Glenn. Um, so he's having to deal with this governor, Governor Devlin, who uh, is wonderfully sort of played, the, by the way. You hate that yes. guy from oh. the moment you see him on camera, and he and it, when you, know, he, you first see him when he's doing a press conference soundbite, so he's got his PR face on, and you hear him talking, you think, God, you're a scumbag. And then he goes into the warden's office, immediately lights up a cigarette, and launches into a tirade, and your initial impression is absolutely confirmed. I said, if there are any real villains in the show, you know, if there's any, if there's a real villain that sets the action uh, in motion, it's Devlin, but by a yeah. by a wide margin. 
Um, and that's, he's, and, the, you know, and that's he, one of, he's the puppet master pulling the strings up there that makes things happen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and when you consider the shows about murderers and rapists, and the one true villain in the show is the governor, boy, does that tell you a lot about this show. Um, but so, uh, Warden Glenn has to deal with the pressure of a guy who's slowly but surely creating a, um, a combustible situation in his prison, um, and then he's got all the inmates to deal with. And then on top of that, he's, uh, he's indebted to the mafia because they have allowed his brother to remain a free man, and so he's got to deal with that. And then his daughter is raped by a member of El Norte, which is Alvarez's gang. He's got to deal with that. And, you know, it just – and it's uh, what man amongst us wouldn't have been buried alive by all of those uh, various you know, issues you have to deal with. And so, no, he does not always make a good decision. But, you know, who would? Who, 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 who would be so perfect as to be able to shoulder all of that and still always make the right decision? So he's a painfully human character and a – I will I, say I I don't, you know, I agree there would be false decisions. I would, in that position, I would probably lash out at Alvarez after that particular comment that he makes during their morning briefing or whatever that pisses off the warden. There's a lot of of his mistakes that I think would probably be echoed by a lot of people. I don't think exploiting my daughter's rape to get votes when you're nominated for lieutenant governor would be one of the mistakes I would make. No, and that's fine. (laughs) You know, the thing is, it's funny, I've, I've had this conversation with CEOs before, and, I, you know, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about why they can do this and, but, you know, and we can't do that. And I, and I always have to keep reminding them it's because we're supposed to be better than these. And he is supposed to be the best amongst all of his staff. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what goes along with being the warden. And at times, he's just as bad, if not worse. Uh, but that's, 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 that, that is the, the road you take with that particular character. Um, he's sympathetic and tragic. You know, where, where Beecher is sympathetic and tragic. Warden Glenn is sympathetic and tragic. McManus is just tragic. <laughs> he's not in the least bit sympathetic. He's and a cautionary he's tale the, about absolutist thinking. Yeah, you know, and naivete. That's, you know, to take into the nth degree. Yeah, and that, well, that takes up kind of the big ones we wanted to talk about, but the show is so full of awesome characters that, you know, again, yeah, how how do you want to frame a good guy gone bad type of thing? There's a lot of different ways you can frame that. But there are certainly, you know, even just within the realm of straight villainy that I think deserve discussion. And again, these are all human characters. None of them are necessarily black and white. In the, you know, yes, like Chris Keller, murderous, sociopath, manipulative, horrible human being, still very much a human being in that... You know, he, you know, he's not just a flat character. Uh, you know, he's not a cardboard cutout. It's not, oh, we need this space filled. Here's a picture of Christopher Maloney, and that'll suffice. So there are some other ones that I want to talk about within the realm of Oz because there are some interesting ones here as well. And one of the ones, one of the primary characters, one of the guys whose opinion and actions wind up shaping a lot of the action, I think we'd be remiss not to mention Kareem Saeed as far as this goes. Yeah. Played by the great Emin Walker. I struggle so with you, his character. He and he he is the he is the main antagonist for uh McManus. for McManus. They are the embroiled they are as embroiled well no, more McManus than anything else. Oh more McManus, um, absolutely. They that they are as embroiled sequence, I mean you're introduced to him, you know, Augustus Hill who does all the narrating, apart from a cut there's like what I think the last episode or a couple of episodes in the last season have other guest narrators brought back to talk about, to do narration instead. You have Dino come back, uh, Jefferson Keene comes back, Catherine Erb, crazy, uh, Munchausen. What a hairy bush on that woman. (laughs) What a hairy bush on that woman. 
Yeah, she was crazy in like the worst way possible. <laughs> Only because I know people, I'm aware of people, I don't necessarily know them personally, who are as self-centered more or less as she's, everything's about her, it has to be made about her. Oh, I killed the de- uh, no, I killed my son because he was possessed by the devil. No, you just want attention and you can't deal with it emotionally. But you know, so she comes back and does some narration, but Augustus Hill does the majority of the narration here. And he introduces Saeed, who blew up a business, who blew up a building. There was no one in it. No one was hurt. But he still blew up a building. And the first thing, one of the first things that he says when he gets into Oz, he sits down. He's being put in Emerald City with McManus. The warden's there. He says, you know, there are so many black inmates to so many correction officers. And he's making kind of his political speech there. And McManus kind of goes, well, what's your point? And he goes, my point is that from today on, I run Oz. And they kind of blow him off. But that's your introduction to the character. He politically motivated, but he's willing to throw down. He's diametrically opposed to McManus in so many ways, and they have so many just interesting interactions between the two of them. Well, so, he's, um, he's he's the, the least interesting in the entire series in uh, the first season. I think in the first season, he was just so bloviating and, and so self-righteous. Um, you get his point, but it's one of the situations where someone can beat you over the head with a point, and that's fine, but because they beat you over the head, you're still not you're not particularly sympathetic to the point, even if they've got a good one. It's um, a little bit of season one where he's challenged by Rebido, you know, and he says, you know, uh, Jefferson De- Jefferson Keen welcomed death like a long lost lover. That was later. Yeah, that was later. That, I think that was that was that was the only interesting. That was the only time he's interesting in season one. Was that whole? I don't that, think that, that happened in season thing. one. No, that is because Jefferson King dies in season. Well, I know that, but I believe that conversation between those two takes place later. I think the interaction between him and Rebido to begin with is you know, Bob Rebido claims to hear the voice of God and, to his credit, knows some odd things before they happen. But he tells Kareem Saeed that, you know, yeah, I talked to God, and Saeed kind of blandly responds with, well, you're in great company then. Only Moses and Muhammad have actually spoken with God. But I don't think they had that particular exchange in the first season. I could be wrong. I mean, there's a very good chance I am. I rec- I seem to recall that happening later when Either way, he's being tested about his faith. Yeah, it's it's around the same time that the one guy shows up who um wants to make the Muslims more violent and then they ultimately end up, and then he <laughs> then he allows them to die of a heart attack or nearly die yes, of a heart yes, attack. I I remember him. Um what I like, my oh. favorite part of his story arc first, first of all, I love the uh, writing of the narration by Augustus because there, you know, prison is a horrible place, but if you are absolutely alone, which is what happens to him because Saeed survives the heart attack, this guy is convinced that it's the will of Allah, he wants more violence out of the Muslims, and Saeed is more content to bide his time. So he tries to let Saeed die, Saeed survives, casts him out of the Muslim community, so none of them will look at him, talk to him, acknowledge him. He then begins looking for another place to call home. He tries to get in good with Adebisi, and Adebisi brushes him off. Tries to get in with you know the Italians, Ryan O'Reilly. And he goes to everybody, and the last guy he goes to, he is kind of walking up to Schillinger, and they just look at each other for a couple of seconds, and then he walks off like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> good idea, bad idea. Um, but the point that I was getting to is, that's the best. If, if it's season one that I'm thinking of, that's the only time in season one he's the least bit interesting. He's not the, really interesting in season one, no. No. It's going on um, when he starts getting interperson his own conflicts within himself that he becomes more interesting because, I mean, 
he kind of confronts you know some of the, his own hypocrisy a little bit in one of the seasons, mm-hmm. and he, especially, I mean, he go he becomes his relationship with Beecher is kind of interesting because he suffers within the black Muslim community because he's trying to help a white guy, which everyone else is like, what are you doing? He's white and he's kind of crazy, and he's like, no, I when I became an imam, I swore that I would try to help all children of God, and Beecher's just another lost soul, but that's actually makes paves the way for Hamid Khan actually Ernie Hudson's son to take over the Muslim brotherhood from to take over the Muslim gang from Said and he's kind of left out in the cold for a while there he hooks up with Adabi pretends to then he kills Adabi and him dealing with the you know, internal strife of I killed this man was an inter- was watching him deal with that was a thing but originally no he's actually kind of flat i mean he's very charismatic right. but he's not but he's but he's very static yeah um again they they made him sort of the conscience of the show. Uh, to, you know, it's like they, it, it was almost a device to get to the season finale, which was sort of a look at how you know if you continue to treat human beings like animals, then the animals will turn around and bite you, and that you have to find some sort of look. As I tell the people at the prison all the time, either treat them like human beings or kill them, but stop trying to play around in the middle. It's not going to work. Um, you know, make a decision. So. And that's and that's kind of what his job is. His job is to sort of get the audience to that place of uh, what are we doing with the prison system, and that's kind of all he does. Um, it's it's the subsequent seasons when he's dealing with the other inmates uh, in ways that are outside of his character. You know, he falls in love with Scott Ross's sister, who is a blonde white girl. Why are black men always like the black white blonde women? Yeah, you ever think about that? Um, but uh, you know it, that's when he becomes a much more fully fleshed out and uh, an interesting character. Uh, in terms of you know good men who have gone bad, you don't get a whole lot of his backstory. Not that I recall, at least. I mean, maybe if I rewatch the entire series, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll they mention it a couple of times. Off the top of my head, they mention a bit of his family life because he meets with his sister, who's uh, reverend, I think, in some Baptist derivation, which must make family gatherings interesting prior to his <laughs> being incarcerated. <laughs> Uh, before he kind of traveled the world and was, you know, kind of the, bo- I don't want to say bohemian, but that kind of gives the correct impression. Big free thinker before he became, before he converted to Islam, because he met Lemuel Idzig, the man who eventually killed him, and turned his world upside down with a conversation over, like, lunch because of the inevitable collapse of the solar system. <laughs> of the, the universe as we know it, the principles that govern it are finite. And that revelation, like, crushes this poor Jewish man who he shared a cup of coffee with in Rome or something like that. I mean, it was just... Lemuel Idzik had a great line, too. After he kills Kareem Saeed, you know, they arrest him. They bring him in for booking him, and they said, you you signed in as Lemuel Idzik. Is that your real name? And he just kind of like, who would make that up? <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's not but, a whole uh, lot of his backstory. Again. Yeah, I mean, essentially, he's angry about the treatment of African Americans in the United States. He's angry at... You know, a system that sets you up for failure through abject poverty and uh, the ever-present drugs in the community, and then locks you up, dehumanizes you, then and then sets you back into then sets you back into society, only to restart the whole process all over again. And he's angry about it, and he finds no other way to um, deal with this than to try to tear it all down. And he's, you know, and. And it's it's interesting. He's a very in that sense. His, his whole ideology is so flawed, and it's not that being a Muslim is flawed, not by a long stretch. It's that he's angry at how how in his mind 
and then maybe this is true, which is not for us to debate here now, uh, African-Americans in America are set up to fail. And his way of expressing that is to um, tear a prison down from the inside. When you think about, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to rob a bank, and but my way of doing that is, you know, is <laughs> is to I'm going to, uh, you know, walk into a bank and you know and and mug one of the tellers. You know, not take the bank's money, just just the teller's money. It's kind of you know you you've missed the point. Your aim is too small, sir. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do, and that, that's an accurate description as far as what he's trying to do. I mean, he could have done – when you look at the character and his goals, he, objectively speaking, could have done so much more if he had been outside. And, Gov- and uh, Governor Devlin tries to release him early one of the seasons – I forget which season – but for the upcoming Islamic holiday, he's doing a thing where he grants early release – or it might have been full clemency to one – incarcerated inmate for each major religious holiday and they were on ramadan he'd already done hanukkah i think and you could you know, so he's currying favor with the voting public and he wants to release saeed and saeed goes out to the press conference and says no i will not be used as a pawn for you to curry voters favor i'm rejecting your offer of clemency i'm staying here when he could have done right. so much more to actually achieve his goal if he was on the outside well it's funny you know um, i don't know if you watch the newsroom but um one of the things that's going on in that show is Jeff Daniels, who plays uh, uh, Will McAvoy, has a um, you know the need to be loved by strangers, and he makes a lot of decisions based on that. And when you think about what was the real motivation behind um, Saeed rejecting clemency, it was the need to be loved by his fellow Muslims in the prison. Okay, didn't matter who else would love him, you know, on the outside, it was. He felt the he felt the pressure of his clan his immediate clan in the prison sort of rejecting him and not believing in him because he was going to get out early and not stay with them and fight. So it didn't matter what he could have accomplished. It was you guys don't love me anymore. I'll I'll, I'll stay with you. And then the fact you know the fact that he makes this big big dramatic speech is almost secondary and not the point. Um, to the outside world watching, you know it was very dramatic and fine. But the the reality of it was he was reacting to. Um, that he was reacting to the Muslims in the prison uh, being mad at him, and he couldn't handle it. Well, they were pretty mad at him at that point, if I remember. <laughs> <laughs> he would have gone home. What difference would it have made? The fact of the matter was... That he... Don't get me wrong. I completely think that was a boneheaded decision, especially since it directly led to his death because he was in the prison when Lemuel Lidzig gunned him down. Oh, well, I mean, it led to a lot of things that went wrong for him. But the point of it was is, you know, it is amazing what, the, what, what someone will do for love. That's really what this show is about, Robert Winfrey. Oz was yeah. about love. Love. Lots of it. In the butt. And the very twisted forms that it takes. <laughs> eh. You know, that is just some of the things that are done. I mean, you know, we talked a bit earlier about Ryan O'Reilly. His big gripe with, I mean, he had no objective problem with Vern Schillinger for the first for a while, I mean, he kind of scheme around him a couple of times, but once his brother gets brought in and is immediately sexually assaulted by the Nazis in a closet, O'Reilly gets royally pissed off, and that's when he starts trying to bring down Schillinger. Well, who wouldn't get angry when a Nazi rapes your brother in the butt? I mean, really. You know, that's I, I, terrible, terrible manner. I don't disagree with that, but... Then <laughs> your butt. But yeah, but yeah, so we've mentioned Chris Keller before. I want to a little bit more just kind of devote a brief section to him because I found his character so fascinating in that he's this 
completely narcissistic sociopath. Everything he does is about himself, his gratification, what he wants to do, and he feels absolutely no remorse for anything that he does in the true sense of remorse. He's more... After he and Schillinger and Metzger break all of Beecher's limbs in, I think it's the season two finale, or near the finale after they cripple the poor guy, he's then seen, you know, kind of in their cell and looking at Beecher's bunk, kind of like, well, oh man, you know, I kind of missed that guy. Man, what did I do? That was a mistake. And he then professes later that he loves Beecher, which is a load of crap. He just He just became obsessed with what they had together what he perceived they had together, it, it was all about him and his gratification as opposed to objectively loving any other human being besides himself. But I specifically kind of want to bring him up because in the final season, he's kind of responsible for you know, all of the big climaxes and everything. He's the one who has, he positions Beecher to kill Schillinger. They're doing a play of Macbeth and Beecher is playing Macduff and Schillinger is playing Macbeth and Beecher's in pro- and Beecher and Keller's in charge of the props. He replaces the stage prop shank, which is completely harmless, that Beecher was going to stab Schillinger with with a real one. But he's playing both of them, and you constantly see him telling Beecher, no, it's okay, we're going to take care of Schillinger, we're going to be fine, I'm taking care of this. The next scene, he's with Schillinger saying, oh, no, man, I got Beecher wrapped around my little finger, he doesn't know which way is up. And because of his history, you have absolutely no idea which way he's actually going. And he then poisons all of the Nazis in the mailroom with some... (laughs) anthrax of some or something like that and just to kind of cap off his narcissism and need to control things his last act is to frame beecher for his murder because he throws himself gets into a minor physical altercation then throws himself from the second balcony of emerald city lands breaks his neck and as he's falling he shouts beecher no just because even in death he has to have the last word yeah uh, you know i didn't necessarily the, view the character beecher is at... just a hurricane of manipulation and he makes stuff happen and he's it's fascinating for me watching Maloney Christopher Maloney play him because my again my experience with Maloney to this point when I got around to seeing it was much more limited and particularly kind of focused on him playing Elliot Stabler from Law and Order SVU which is a completely different character than Keller and again when you see an actor actually stretch their legs and do two so different things it's always fascinating it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about Brian Cranston as Walter White because he was coming from being Hal on Malcolm in the Middle to you know Heisenberg the one who knocks and to see him do both of those so completely and compellingly was fascinating. I still I maintain that when he said I am the danger I am the one who knocks he should have shot Skylar in the kneecap. <laughs> you just don't like Skylar. I really don't. But back to Oz. Um, you know what do you want me to say about Chris Keller? He is. It was almost as if the writers sitting around saying, we can't have Ryan O'Reilly doing everything. Let's let's bring in another character who's just as much a sociopathic shitstorm. Uh, and, and so that way we can have two, two, two tornadoes going at the same time. And that was Chris Keller. You know, he... Uh, but to, what I was going to say about Beecher was I, I didn't realize until the very end of the show just how... Uh, that's the word I'm looking for here. Uh, codependent. Beecher was, you know, he could, you know, once he had fallen in love with, with Chris, he could not break himself free from it. Even, you know, even, even the carrot of freedom itself was not strong enough to pull him away from Chris and doing all the dumb things that he does. Um, and, and part of that was he could not, could not live with himself. 
there had to be that other person there to distract him from um, the broken mess that he, even if it was someone as evil as Chris was. You know, as far as Chris himself, you know, you want to talk about devices. That's you know, him and Ryan O'Reilly, as cool as they are, are devices on that show. They are they are there, as I said, they are tornadoes. They are there to flip things up and turn them around and send them into a million directions and get things moving. Oh, really? I'm sorry. Uh, I I agree with your point. You know, you do need characters that are there did, to push the plot along. Did you just see the Ben Affleck well thing? Yes. For those of you listening live, <laughs> news has just broken that Ben Affleck will play Batman in Man of Steel 2. Yep. And I have never no, had a single well positive lasted. thing. I've never had a single positive thing to say about Ben Affleck ever. So there's my stance on that. But back to Oz. Happier things. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. the topic of ma- of male rape and prison life is more appealing to me than Ben Affleck doing anything. Yup. You know uh, what I've always on. about Ben Affleck? <laughs> oh, man. But, okay, moving on. I'm going to put that out of my mind for a little bit, then I'll rant later. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about a lot of the kind of main characters that go on in this, and there's a bunch of fun side characters within this series, too, and that's one of the great things about Oz. They managed to create so many characters who weren't just flat. I mean, they weren't just space fillers. The only one that I thought of as a space filler was in the third or fourth season when McManus comes back to Emerald City after Kearns let everyone get high. Speaking of Kearns, I, <laughs> you know, we got to talk about him a little bit. He's only there for a bit in season like three, and then at the end he takes over after Warden Glenn is murdered. But, you know, you... It's season four, by the way. You work within the prison season... system. I, Hang on. I just want your it's thoughts on... Four, thank you. I just want your thoughts on Kearns as a character, you know. I, I just want to get kind of your thoughts on, you know, I don't mind if you all get high on heroin as long as you don't cause problems. Um, well, isn't this what happens in The Wire? Um, Kearns was, Kearns was, the, was the argument, was, was the drug war argument, summed up in a character. Uh, in The Wire, it's, um, what's his face? Oh, I haven't gosh. seen The Wire yet. I have to watch it uh, after I get finished with Sopranos. Okay, well, for those who have seen The Wire, you all know who I'm talking about. Season 3, the um, the captain who allows them to uh, uh, deal drugs in, in, in um, oh, gosh. Ugh. Where is where is where is marijuana legal in Europe? I don't know. Finland? Sweden? Yeah. Um, all right. France, probably. <laughs> no, no, no. It's one of the, the Scandinavian countries. Uh, uh, Finland, Sweden, have... or Norway. Denmark, maybe. Uh, Holland. Holland. City in Ho- is there a famous city in Holland? Amsterdam. Jesus there we Christ. go. Yeah. Well, so, so so the captain that allows the drug dealers to legally deal drugs in Amsterdam uh, on season three of The Wire, uh, Kearns is that guy for Oz. You know, in season four, to a degree, they really examined of what is the what is the mass effect of allowing a sort of free for all when it comes to drugs. And I'm not going to, again have that kind of debate here and now. But here's what I will, will tell you. Um, when you allow drugs to enter into any system, it will act as any poison does. It will cause people to exponentially make more and more terrible decisions. And if you don't have any kind of controls on it, what you'll end up having is organized chaos. Um, so that was kind of Kearns. I mean, you know, it also dealt a little bit with, um, you know, what happened, you know, the look who's coming to dinner thing. You know, what happens when you put... Um, you know, when you when you flip the sort of power structure, the historical power structure in the United States of, you know, whites being on top and blacks being minorities and such, what happens when you flip that on its head? What does it look like? Um, 
and, and, you know, and then throw drugs in there to sort of really muck up the thing. You know, it looks Reggie like Cassidy, Adam DC has a private recorder and three prags at the same time in a room that constantly has a sheet up before he is stabbed to death by Kareem Saeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's again, it's chaos. It's um, there's, there's no order to things. Um, Reggie Cassidy plays, play, you know, plays the character very well. He's another cool character. Um, again, he was on the wire as one of the political consultants, and he was cool then too. When he was on the corner, he played a cool heroin user. I mean, that's just sort of Reggie Cassie. He's the uh, you know he's the jazz actor. You know, he just brings the same sort of level of cool to uh, to every role that he plays. And um, you know, in this one, it was kind of a no good deed goes unpunished kind of a thing. He was trying to minimize the I mean the whole reason why McManus ends up being fired is be, or being transferred out of Emerald City was because of the ongoing violence in the place and so he came up with what he thought was an easy solution here you know drugs cause the violence well if I just let you have the drugs then you know, there won't be any more violence it's just, you know it was the same mentality on the wire they wanted to bring they wanted to bring down the murder rate in West Baltimore well uh, fighting over drugs causes murders as long as you can have all the drugs you want you won't murder anymore how does that sound and you well, know that and he eliminated racial te- tried to eliminate racial tensions by getting rid of all the white and latino guys and filling it full of african americans yeah my I feeling mean, about it, that my personal feeling is people who are violent will find reason to kill each other no matter what you just oh yeah when you take away the yeah, obvious george, reasons they need more creative maybe, ones yeah we had george carlin say you can eliminate everybody on earth except for the last man who will look into the mirror and who will uh, that if you eliminate everybody on Earth save one man, that crazy fucker will attack the mirror. I believe it. I absolutely believe it. <laughs> um, George so, I mean, season 16 was a lot of fun. And it sort of took um, what were – it was the longest season of Oz. Every, all these other seasons are eight episodes. This one was 16. And it just, just sort of took a lot of the uh, themes and ideas and turned them on their head just to see what they would look like. And then the last eight episodes, they sort of fright the ship again. And, we're, and you know, and we're back to uh, things being familiar, and there being as you know as much balance as there can be in Oz. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're on the bus going out after the biological agent was released by Chris Keller, and on the bus you see all the familiar faces. There's poor Ryan O'Reilly, and there's Tobias Beecher, and Bob Rebido, and Agamemnon Busmalis, and all these guys that you've come to know, and you just kind of realize, you know, nothing actually changed. I mean, they killed, they, towards the end of that show, they were killing people just to kill them, I felt like. <laughs> yeah, it really was Shakespearean. But I'll tell you what, um, of the HBO series, they all kind of end the same way, and I, I've been talking a lot about this lately, um, you know, with shows like The Wire, the HBO shows, um, sorry, I meant to say The Shield. Uh, you know, this is all leading to an to a Google Hangout after the finale of Breaking Bad, and you know, and a, everyone loves a bad guy dedicated to Breaking Bad. These all kind of end the same way. The message is life goes on. So in The Sopranos, they just cut in the middle of a conversation. I never actually saw it, but from what I understand, they just cut in the middle of a conversation. And what the writers of that show were trying to say is, well, life just goes on. You never know what's going to happen, which was totally unsatisfying. But from what I understand, oh yeah, nobody but liked it. Yeah, but that was the point they were trying to make there. In Oz, they, you know, they uh, they release a biological uh, agent into the place, and everyone gets on the bus. And what and what was the what were the writers saying? Well, no matter no matter where you house these people, there'll always be prisons, and life just goes on. Okay, in The Wire, everybody that did bad got promoted. Everybody that did good 
got demoted or killed, and the message was life just goes on, including, you know, drugs and whores. <laughs> you know, everyone fucking died yeah, I mean, in that does. deal. You know, Mackie, Mac- 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 uh, uh, the very last episode of The Shield is Mackie's living in his own version of hell, and life just goes on. So, so I would suspect that uh, Breaking Bad will end the same way. Walt will be alive in his own version of hell, and life will go on. That depends on how serious Aaron Paul was being when he says everyone dies. Okay. They need to play For those of you negative, who don't know, dies. Aaron Paul, the actor who plays Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad, people have been, I assume people have been harassing him about the ending of Breaking Bad, you know, because everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Someone apparently asked him about a, the potential of a Breaking Bad movie. His response was, no, it can't happen because everyone dies in the Yeah, I wouldn't and, doubt it. <laughs> you know, it could happen. I would not at all be surprised to see Walt take that uh, combat shotgun that you see in the beginning of the second half of season five. Where's it the first half? They have the flash forward, and he's got this like semi-automatic shotgun in the trunk of a car that was that he bought. And it wouldn't surprise me to see him go on a huge you know, rampage after he kind of finally snaps. But I want to see yeah. Skyler uh, take Holly and go find Matthew's wife and uh, and his girls. And uh, have them form a lesbian relationship where they, where you know, and form a support group of of um, emotionally shattered wives of uh, crazy sociopath husbands. Hey, Maggie Siff from Sons of Anarchy can show up. There we go. See. And <laughs> had she not died, we could have made a big, a good case for uh, uh, what's her name from Dexter. <laughs> I can always remember. Hey, had she not died, I can always remember the actress uh, Julie Benz. I forget the character she played in the name of the character in Dexter. Right. But you know, she died, so that's kind of out. But yeah, all these poor women who they need a support group. They really do. That's what I want. That's what I want to see. I want to see the movie that deals with all of them. And Larry of from uh, and Larry from Orange is the New Black. He can be an honorary woman, considering uh, things that being played yeah. by Jason Biggs. You know, <laughs> well, I've never on. enjoyed you, Jason Biggs in anything. But you he just becomes so my honorary woman joke. He uh, he can be an honor. He doesn't need to be an honorary woman. I'm pretty sure he is. <laughs> He's faking uh, it, folks. I. I'm just, I don't, I've never enjoyed him in anything, and he becomes so, you know, the two main characters in Orange is the New Black, uh, Larry and I forget the girl, I forget the characters, the girl who gets locked up, but they are just so unlikable, and I mean, you can kind of see where she has these somewhat impossible situations that she's placed in, he's just kind of a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that, that right. was kind of my thing with Skylar was, you know, I'll make certain allowances because you're in this impossible situation that... So you know, you would act differently and whatnot, but God, you're whiny. <laughs> All right, back to Oz. Y- yes, back to Oz. Uh, oh, I we have not yet talked about well too much about Miguel Alvarez, the guy who is so full of himself that he believes God will is punishing him for being too pretty. Yes, by killing his son. Yeah, we. I. I yeah, he's another one of those primary characters who you meet in the beginning and is still there in the end. So we we should probably talk about him a little bit. Well, he's your he he's the one who they talk about mental health in prisons with. Um, you know, he gets a lot of lines that deal with you know simultaneously. Yes, there's there's all of his uh, dealings with El Norte and you know him being sort of the outsider of that gang and you know his constant feuds with El Cid and then whoever replaces El Cid. Um, um, you know, he, oh, I can't remember his name. Great actor though, uh, David Zayas portrays him. Um, I can't, okay, I'm gonna look it up. You keep talking. <laughs> I'll find it. Okay, but um, but they also but he's they also he's a character that, that they sort of deal with mental health in prisons with you know they talk about how they got him on depression pills, antidepressants, 
and then um, in the there's a little bit of a subplot where um, mental health uh, where medical services are being uh, are being um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Sorry, medical on. services are being provided are being provided by a contract provider instead of being by by pr- prison uh, staff. So, which is actually uh, which hits me right where I live because the um, I work for a, a private company that provides medical services to correctional institutes. That is exactly uh, what I do. The other character is Enrique and, Morales. Um, yes, and. You know, it's it's funny. I, I've actually seen this happen in real life. So here, so here's an example. In in Oz, they talk about how um, they have to change medications to things that are on to ones that are on formulary, um, or they have to stop giving them altogether in order to save money. Staff is cut. There are all these different, but you know, and, and of course, the show is taking the point of view of you know we shouldn't be cutting costs where people's lives are at stake. And it's you know, you know, of course, that's God. You want to see preachy? Watch the newsroom. But um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of preachiness there in, in the show Oz. In real life, um, the company, which shall remain nameless, that I work for, recently was awarded a huge contract for all the prisons in um, a particular region of Florida, a huge geographical region of Florida. And what kept coming up as I, as I listened to people talk about it was how overstaffed the prisons were where they had four providers, they would cut them to one or a part-time. They threw out entire sections. I mean, just so many people, uh, their positions were cut, all in the name of saving the state of Florida money, which was the whole purpose they privatized medical services in the first place. And if you're listening, Dad, this, <laughs> this is for you. You know, my father is definitely one of those people who scream at the top of his lungs that privatization is the devil's, uh, is the devil's work, um, because you can't do more with less another familiar subject from the wire. Um, you can only do less with less. But if you want to save money, that is what that is what a company like mine is really, really good at, is identifying how you can provide services with the least amount of staff and resources possible while still maintaining legal coverage. Um, it's it's sort of it's not it's, they don't talk about too much in Oz, you gotta to get to the raping and the killing, but it's there. And they use Alvarez to sort of tell that story. Um, he gets thrown into isolation a lot. So it's an opportunity to tell what that's like for people. They do, you know, they they do that with his with his grandfather, uh, who's also in isolation. So um, isolation in prison is an important subject. You know, man is not meant to be an isolated figure. Um, you know, your brain will start to compensate in ways that uh, are no good for you, hallucinations and such. And so that is something that they talk about and they use Alvarez for. Uh, to talk about well, what happens to people when they're in kept in elongated isolation. Um, that's really it. You know, again, he's another he's another device character. He's sort of flat for me. Um, you know, he's crazy. So you know, he's he's crazy and he's a sociopath and a gang member. And so you know, whatever they need him for with those three pillars is is what he does. I tended to feel he was flat. I got a bit of difference out of him uh, in. I think it's the first season, I could be wrong, it might be the second, when he attacks that prison guard and blinds him at the it's behest of El Cid. Yes. Which is what gets him thrown Which is into... hilarious. Which, hang on, is hilarious, by the way. Because then El Cid's like, I didn't think he was really going to do it. I feel bad now. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, Miguel Alvarez kind of became the de facto leader of the Latino gang in Emerald City. Other people were killed, transferred other stuff and he just kind of became the de facto leader then 
Raul El Cid Hernandez, great actor, plays him, and I can't remember his name. But he gets thrown into Emerald City, and he takes over, and he doesn't like Alvarez. He picks at him all the time, immediately makes him the lowest man on the totem pole, and he constantly tells Luis him Guzman, that's who you're thinking of. Yes, Luis thank Guzman. You. And he constantly tells him it's because you're too white. And yep. Alvarez finally goes, I can't change the color of my skin, man. You know, what, what do you want me to do here? And he goes, no, I'm not talking about your skin. I'm talking about in here. And he points to his chest. You know, you, you know you're too soft. So he, and he gives Alvarez an impossible order because this particular CO used to be a gang member of a rival gang of El Cid. So he tells Alvarez, I want you to blind this man. And then you'll have earned your stripes. He finally does it, and Elsa's like, man, I didn't think he'd actually do it. I kind of liked that kid, actually. Like, well, you know, what the hell? But yeah. that's what gets him thrown in segregation. Now, first he was in there because he and Leo and the warden had a fight. He gets thrown in seg. Blinds an officer, gets thrown back in ad seg. Gets out of ad seg, finally. Uh, they were overcrowded, and he had been in there for too long. And he then escapes with Agamemnon Busmalis, the mole, who... You gotta love that guy who loves digging holes and names them, and <laughs> becomes obsessed with Miss Sally. Yes, I think he, uh, he he ends up in a relationship with her, doesn't he? Uh, no, her secretary, the woman who answers her fan mail, okay. actually marries him. But you get you get some of the best dialogue in that whole show when they're all sitting around watching Miss Sally. She originally starts yeah. out with puppets, you know, little sock puppets. She has a syndicated television series, and it goes on to exercise time with Miss Sally or Sally Size, something like that. And she has, she's well endowed in the chest area, so that's why everyone's watching. But you get all of these bizarre comments about her and the puppets. And, I mean, Beecher and Keller have a funny exchange where Keller's like, man, if I were that puppet, you know, the things I'd do to her. And Beecher sitting behind him in one of the chairs goes, eh, I go for a three-way with the two puppets. <laughs> I mean, you just get these yes. these odd things. But Busmalis digs holes, and he digs a tunnel out of Oz. He and Alvarez escape. He gets picked up stalking the actress who plays Miss Sally. Alvarez gets picked up trying to cross the border into Mexico and is then summarily thrown back in the hole because if you try to escape or succeed in escaping, you're then stuck. You're pretty much stuck there because they can't take the risk of that happening again. Yeah. Um, real quick, just because just I, I, I'm yeah, I have a certain degree of loyalty to the band, uh, Evan Seinfeld plays Jazz Hoyt. And I, I remember it was, Hoyt. again. Yeah, he was a great character. Um, he shows up in, I believe it's season two. Um, just you know, he doesn't do a whole. They need a leader lot. for the um, biker gang after they kill Scott Ross, and you have Jazz. Right, and that's kind of what he does. He he actually starts to get a, get to do. He gets to do a lot more in seasons four, five, and six. Um, well, doesn't he kill that little redheaded pain in the ass Timmy something or other? Yes. I, cause yeah, he that, gets he gets involved. That with the kid annoyed the piss out of me. Whenever I, it's pretty bad. He was just annoying. I mean, again, one of these just annoying characters like Omar White, who, you know, just, you know, I get that there are people like that, and yes, they kind of serve a purpose as far as the story goes. It doesn't make them less annoying. I'm currently watching The Sopranos, and I feel that way about Tony Soprano's mother. Every time someone sees her, oh, I wish the good Lord would take me. I'm going, yeah, I wish he'd take you too. <laughs> yeah, well, again, there's plenty again, of again, I'm going of through The Sopranos in preparation for because next week, uh, I have Pat Mullen on here, and we'll be talking Sopranos. Week after that, I want to do either The Wire with you or The Shield with somebody else. Uh, I want to have Sam Riccati on for Dexter one of these times. I still have, you know, I know kind of what shows I want to do and the directions I want to go in. I just need to nail down specific weeks and specific guests. But anyway, 
over annoying characters, Jazz Hoyt, who awesome character. He, he's another one who I thought they killed just because they killed. Uh, hey, he's been here. We have to kill him. When yeah. his getting out and his eventual the onset of schizophrenia was what happened to him, and turns out he was actually from a very wealthy family. He just liked being a biker and being a criminal. But it just seemed like, oh, wait, you know, there's some resolution. There would be some resolution here when he's moved to a mental facility to treat his schizophrenia. We have to kill him. <laughs> yep. I, I think, like I said, you know, at times the it, it became very Shakespearean. It was like, we don't know what to do with these people. Well, let's kill them because that's always. And sometimes it is, but at other times it's like, you know, when Warden Glenn died or you know, Jazz Hoyt, there's somebody else who, and just like everybody died in that show, pretty much. Nothing stopped. It's just like you know. Wars. I I just kind of got to the point where it's like you know I understand killing people for a purpose. I mean Jefferson Keene served a purpose when he died, and the other death row inmate who they should have executed first. The day before his execution, he then confesses to like six other murders. Yes, all while playing with a yo-yo. Yes, and I mean the irony of that being. The governor insisted they execute Jefferson Keene first to send a political message when here's this white guy who did exponentially worse things than Keene did. Keene killed someone in self-defense. Well, well, when, when he was in prison, well, he killed someone thing. in self-defense. Oz was not short on political messages. I think people tend to, you know, what if you say, hey, you know anything about the show Oz? You know, that's the one with a lot of the male, full, full frontal male nudity and, uh, and the raping. Like, okay. So none of the political messages got through, I think. I think, you know, someone like me who's watched the series several times and was, you know, just it's one of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah, I got it. I also study this stuff. I'm sitting here on a podcast doing a television discussion. I'm a film and TV guy. I got it. But for the general audience, I don't know if any of the messages got through. I don't know if anyone was able to extrapolate from this the problems inherent in our prison system. But that was what the show was trying to do, was trying to show all of these things in a dramatic fashion. Yes, these were great stories. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I doubt a whole lot terror. of that got through. Well, part right, of the problem I mean, was we, they made they made the couriers of the message so unlikable in some ways. I mean, like I just said, McManus, you know, very flawed character, but is such a jerk that you can't take his point of view serious enough to even look at it as, oh, wait, people actually think this way? Like, no, <laughs> man, nobody's that stupid. No, well, yeah, they are. <laughs> right. Like, but, they should have been. You wanted to talk then, about... Jazz Hoyt a little bit because the guy who plays him is in a band or oh, Jim something, Duggan. right? I always like to mention that he was. Uh, I used to be a big fan of the band Biohazard uh, from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I was very excited when um, you know when one of the guys from the band that I listened to, and he sings a song, and I think it's the last season. Um, uh, Evan Seinfeld, formerly of Biohazard, gets to actually sing a song. It's pretty cool. It was a good use of uh, his other talents, but yeah, I uh, you know for a guy who was known for being in this band, this hard, you know, this hardcore band. Um, it was uh, it was fun to see him act in this show and, and do a reasonably good job. So I thought that was it. Just you know, wanted to shout out to a band that I that I got to see a lot of times play live in my youth. And that's always fun when you see somebody like that exceed. And again, um, Jasper was very one of my favorite characters. I mean, you know, I, you know, you have some great characters but as far as just you know kind of being the leader of the bikers within you know, the realm of oz and whatnot he did a good job did it i mean i had fun once he started you know once the schizophrenia set on he started all having his mental health issues because he did a great job portraying that and that's not an easy thing to do correctly it's very easy for that to become over the top and almost a caricature he did it very well there's a lot of uh really really fun um people who made cameos in the series 
Just looking at the Wikipedia page of Eric Roberts, Joyce Van Patten, Method Man, Luke Perry, loved his character, Master P, who I barely remember, Tratch, L.O. Cool J as Jiggy Walker, who was hilarious in his season, uh, Rick Fox, yeah. Dana Ivey, and Peter Chris from Kiss. Fantastic. Yeah, they got a, you know, they, like, they got a fair amount of cameos. I mean, Rick Fox was even a semi-regular for at least recurring for I think the rest of the show. He was introduced in season one. Yeah, he's uh, he plays Jackson Vayhu, uh the basketball player, which I didn't realize when I was talking to Jeremy about this that he's an actual basketball player. Yeah, he was. He played for the Lakers for a while. Went on then went on to be a successful actor. Uh, played this. He's done a couple of movies. He plays himself on some crappy sitcom right now. I think. Uh, can't remember what it's called. I want to say something like the game. Uh, I think it's the game. Uh, you know, one of those. You know, kind of like cheap, almost Tyler. You know, Tyler Perry shows, for want of a better phrase, or a dime a dozen. I believe he plays himself in one. of them. Okay. Huge stretch. Very cool. Yeah, sure. And he's currently dating Eliza Dushku. Well, uh, that just makes me sad. Why? <laughs> Eliza Dushku's hot. And why is he dating her? Well, I guess I just answer my own question. Well, so I don't, it's just, I don't, hey, it's if you find fair. her attractive, good for you. She's technically like a duchess or something. Is she really? Yeah. Uh, I forget which, I forget which country, but yeah, she actually is like royal bloodline descended. Oh, shit, she in, plays uh, the She-Hulk in Hulk and the Agents of Smash. Well, I first saw her in uh, as the daughter in True Lies. One of my favorite action movies of all time, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, she's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter in that movie. I, I, I... The first thing I remember her being in was uh, Jane Silent Bob's um, uh, Strike Back. I don't remember. Oh, no, so I'm sorry. First thing I remember seeing her in was Bring It On. I don't remember her in True Lies. I'm not saying that, I mean, I've seen it, but I'm not just, I just don't remember her in it. Yeah, I just, well, I have a strong moral objection to the existence of movies directed by Kevin Smith, so I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> and we're back to the man's sense and we're of back humor and mine like do not mesh. Indeed. I don't like most comedy. Straight comedy very rarely does anything for me. Kevin James, you know, I can rant on Kevin James. I'm going to choose not to because what well, he's not being Kevin James making making crappy comedy movies or whatnot. He's actually quite intelligent. He's been on Talking Dead more than once. Listening to him talk about movies, he's a very intelligent and somewhat insightful person. But heaven above, I hate his. Every right, anything else on Oz you want to talk about? Oh, let's see. Who else would... Uh, see, you mentioned Luke Perry, the Baptist preacher. I was going to say, the only characters that I felt were kind of flat and one note were the Christians that get introduced in season three or four of Oz because Beecher then... Beecher begins correctly establishing, you know, gang boundaries. No gang has more than four members, and he establishes, you know, okay, there's the gangsters, the Irish, the... Mobsters, the Mexican, the gangs, goes through all, and the others, which he includes. He includes Augustus Hill in the others, which offends Augustus because, because he believes he's a because gangster. he's handicapped. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He he gets included in the others because he happens to be in a wheelchair, and it's a great funny line. You know, it's I'm like, a gangster, I'm man. I shot a cop. <laughs> I shot a cop. You can't put me in that cell with Beecher. He's crazy. He bit that guy. And very. Yeah, I almost very wanted McManus to, to go, well, you wouldn't feel it if he did it to you, because he's paralyzed from <laughs> the waist down. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually season two, where they, they've made several changes to Emerald City, yeah, not the yeah. least of which is trying to keep the, um, tr- trying to keep the population uh, even, so that uh, no, the, the one, one group doesn't have control over the other. So yeah, that's when they start focusing on the Christians, and the Christians start to get, the, as, as the series goes on, the Christians just start to get some pretty big storylines. It isn't just the Latinos, the Aryans, and the homeboys anymore. We have a fully fleshed oh, out prison. 
of many rainbow colors. Yeah, I was, we haven't talked about uh, the Italian mafia members in. I mean, we joked, you know, Peter Shabetta's storyline sh- came, you know, show up, get raped. That's kind of what it became. <laughs> but uh, one of my favorite characters early, I really liked Nino. Yeah, but I uh, think, you know, but the, my 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 thing with Nino Shabetta was, you know, he was your typical wise guy boss. You know, there wasn't anything really particularly different about him. You know, they ran the kid. It was almost like it was almost stereotypical. I thought it got much more interesting when um, good old Salman Kala shows up uh, and is the second wise guy boss. Yeah, after, yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Napa, Antonio Napa, yeah. who plays Tuco Salamanca, the guy who takes out Gus Fring with a bomb in his wheelchair. That's right. Um, he finally looked at him. He did. Yeah, Mark Margolis plays Antonio Napa, um, who I think is a much more interesting Italian boss. But not when he's an Italian boss. When they inject him with HIV, when well, yeah, Adam he scratches him with an infected needle. You're right, and and he has, and then they move him to the AIDS unit, and he has to sort of contend with that. He's a much more interesting character. Um, well, he's such a fish out of water has... at that point. I mean, he's housed with a homosexual who dresses like a woman, and he's used to being the big Italian boss. I mean, he gets into his cell. You know, so what's your name, sweetheart? And uh, Napa, Antonio Napa, Mister Napa to you. Ooh, I love a Mister. But he, and he then goes on to like tell his life story to yeah, publish a memoir after he dies. Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, it was an in, it was an interesting sort of uh, turn on the character. But um, I have to say, the Italians after the first first two seasons don't really get a whole hell of a lot. You know, they're mixed up with the homeboys and the drug trade, and that's kind of you know. And other than that, I think um, is it Pancamo? No, it's the Muslim yeah, who Chucky ends up Pancamo. being brain dead. But I mean, Pancamo. No, no Pancamo's the just the leader. No, it's Hamid Khan that Cyril beats into a coma. Right, right, right. But I mean, Pancamo sort of takes over leadership. Uh, for lack of anyone else, and then they don't really do anything with it. He's just there, you know. Well, he and they Beecher have some conflict do... because Be- he- Beecher goes to him to kill uh, Schillinger's other son, who killed his son. Mm-hmm. And well, th- you get a great line from there because after it happens, Pancamo says, "You trust me. They'll never find the body in a million years." Like two months later, they found his body, and Beecher then goes, "You said they'd <laughs> never find him in a hundred years. It's not even been three months." And Pancamo's just like, "Nah, we'll take the heat for it." So he and Schillinger get into it. But I actually liked Pancamo. I, the guy who plays him used to be a professional boxer and very physically intimidating when he wants to. So I liked seeing because you only had a couple of guys in that whole series who physically looked, you know, really intimidating. And Pancamo was one of them. Adebisi was one, and Schillinger to an extent. But everyone else, you know, they look as most prison guys do, kind of normalized. And here's this big, muscle-bound, mean Italian who would beat the dog snot out of you if given a chance. Right. It's like they, they have to get so many of the other. Um, areas of the prison covered. That's what I'm saying. They don't. There's not a tremendous amount of focus on the Italians after the second season. Uh, they really uh, they do become, have to. They, they move on to other things. The second season is just after Nino dies, his son shows up and flubs <laughs> miserably and gets raped by Adebisi and becomes insane. Yep. And then he gets out then of there a little bit later. Gets out of the mental health ward. Tries to kill Schillinger, fails. Gets raped by Schillinger, goes back into the mental health ward. Like, we, his whole character arc became show up, get raped. Yep. He also became a uh, running gag every Monday night as I used to watch wrestling with my friends where we would talk about uh, people being shebetted. Yes, he became a verb. <laughs> That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You ever want to fight have... somebody and be like, I'll sh-, so like, hey, I'll shebetter you, which you, which, you, which you then have to punch, punctuate with, you know what I've always wondered. Oh, good times. Talk. <laughs> Poor Peter Shibetta. <laughs> uh, I did not feel the least bit sorry for him. You know, that... 
Beecher has a great line kind of along those lines, and as far as this goes, he takes, there's a couple of kids in one of the later seasons who come to Oz. He knows the parents of one of them, gets him into Emerald City to kind of, you know, take him under his wing and you know, avoid more of the horrors of prison life. His his friend goes into Gen Pop and is immediately turned into the pigtail-wearing lipstick girl bitch of the Nazi. And, this, and Beecher, the kid Beecher's with finds out that Beecher had a complicated relationship with Chris Keller, reacts badly to it, and... This poor kid is only safe because Beecher has asked the Italians to provide some protection for him. And after he attacks Beecher and insults him, calls him a queer and other derogatory things, Beecher rescinds, goes to the Italians and says, you know, screw it, move him. And he does it also because Vern Schillinger promises him he can deliver the mail and he could then see Chris Keller, who was in protective custody because he ratted on Schillinger about his involvement in breaking Beecher's arms and legs, and this would be a way for him to see Chris, to see Keller. So he rescinds his protection, sends this poor kid into the throes of the Aryans who immediately gang-rape him in a closet. And Beecher <laughs> in the... It's in the gymnasium because Beecher is walking back from somewhere and he sees this poor kid, and he's in therapy, or talking with Sister Peter Marie later, and he says, you know, after the attitude and whatnot that he gave me and just everything associated with him. I thought he deserved it, but no one deserves that. And, of course, that kid is then killed on the electric fence after the Nazis convince... After the neo-Nazis convince him, now we're breaking out, we've disabled the fence. No, they didn't. <laughs> uh, but, anyway, we're about out of time. So, Mark, great to have you. I plan on having you back when I do The Wire uh, in a couple of weeks or so. You down for that, or do you want you me to hand that off? I was a little... If you thought I was a little ver no, first of all, let me just say no. But um, if you thought I was a bit verbose, a bit uh, opinionated on the subject of Oz, oh, you haven't heard me on the wire. I, you know, um, you ever see? Uh, I think it's Anchorman or um, one of the Will Ferrell movies where uh, he's singing a song and he's like, "And if you don't think this is the greatest song ever written, I will fight you." Yeah, that's how I feel about the wire. If you don't think this is the greatest. Um, show in the history of television, I will fight you. I mean, it, it is by far my favorite show of all time, but in my opinion, my uh, completely objective opinion, yeah, it is the best objective. written, <laughs> it is the best written show of all time. So yes, I will be joining. And I, you know, unless you're like, no, I can't handle you when you're like this. You know, which I would understand. I, I, I can be a bit obnoxious. Um, no, I will be totally happy to talk about the wire. Endlessly. Right, so, yeah, I'll have you back in a couple of weeks for that. Next week, again, we're, I'm doing this big countdown to the finale of Breaking Bad, so the next several weeks are dedicated to television villains, heroes, people who make bad decisions, and, of course, along the way we have to talk about the actual bad guys. Next week I will be welcoming Pat Mullen. We will talk about The Sopranos and the incre- – uh, I haven't seen the show. I know what I know what happens, but I haven't actually seen it, so I'm watching it now. I'm hoping to be done with it in time for that episode next week. And James Gandolfini deserved every accolade he ever got for playing Tony Soprano. The man is just genius work as far as I'm concerned where that goes. So, yeah, I'll have you back if, um, Go ahead. Let me know if you, if you don't end up getting anybody for The Shield and you need someone. Uh, I had somebody who said they wanted in, uh, one of the newer guys, I think, on the site. So I'll talk with him. There are some guys who, yeah, I've, I know The Shield is going to be a popular one, and I'm a huge fan of Vic Mackey, so that'll be a good one. Well, Vic and Shane. Now, I mean, just have now are you doing Sons of Anarchy? 
I think so. I'm either doing that as a standalone or I might fold that in with another one depending on how the time schedule works out. Because I might wind up doing one episode that discusses uh, like three or four different shows at the same time just due to time constraints. So that might fall into there. I mean, I'm going to have one on Dexter and I'm going to get Sam Mercati back on. I had a great time with him talking about evil animals and the horrible, horrible shark movies on sci-fi. <laughs> Sharknado, fantastic. Ghost well, Shark right, is coming you. up. Um, it appears in any water. Having... That's the gimmick. Thank you for... The shark appears yes. in any water. Uh, uh, well, thank you for having me. Anything you want to plug? Actually, it was a, well. It was great to you know be able to talk about Oz. Um, I really can't. You know, you see how impassioned I am about the subject. Why I work in the system that I do. I could be a social worker anywhere. I to work in the correctional system because I really do have a passion for um, for that field. And what is life without passion? Now, what do I have to plug? Um, well, the Rattledge Broadcasting Network, which you are a syndicated show on, as a matter of fact. You get to share my little uh, Blog Talk Radio window. Uh, of course, every Sunday night is the 401 Ground and Pound Radio Show, of which Robert uh, is frequently on. You're kind of, kind of slowly but surely uh, eclipsing Pat just by virtue of being on more often. Um, every Tuesday night, we've either got the Metal Hammer of Doom uh, this past Tuesday, we uh, we had Sean Gomer on from 411, along with myself and Robert Cooper, and we reviewed the new Amon Amarth. Uh, before that, two, two weeks before that, we did the new Children of Bodom. Um, and two weeks before that was the new Black Sabbath. And if you want to see, if you want to hear me rip into the new Black Sabbath album, you must simply must give that a try. Um, uh, the opposite Tuesday of the, of the Metal Hammer of Doom is a long road to ruin. Uh, we just wrapped up. Parts one and two of the Mission Impossible series, of which Gavin Napier from the Wrestling Zone and the CasualHeroes.com um, was on the second episode of that. Uh, it was a fun listen; people seem to have enjoyed it. So go ahead and give that uh, a whirl. We will be starting Rambo uh, in just a couple of days. Two parts: uh, first two uh, this Tuesday, and then two weeks from then we'll be do- we'll be doing the second two. Um, hopefully, if Lambert uh, is available, we'll we'll be doing Transformers after that. So please look forward to those. Um, check me out on the casualheroes.com where uh, I walk off the 411 reservation uh, to a website that allows me to talk about pro wrestling because no one else on the site wants to hear me talk about it. So casualheroes.com. When I get around to wrestling villains or, you know, I talking about evil television characters, there's a huge part of me that on one of them I need to devote part of a show to Vince McMahon. The character. Oh yeah. Just sure. I mean, just I mean, not even I mean, in, completely independent of the wrestling world, the character of Mr. McMahon stands as one of the best villains in television. I guarantee you, people will be falling all over themselves to want to talk about that one with you. Oh, I, um, I imagine I'll get more requests for that one than I will when I'm going to have to do one of these on Dana White. I mean, you and Say Mercati did a great one of podcast, just kind of deconstructing him and looking at his ludicrous actions and at times genius. I mean, you do have to give the guy some credit, but at the same time, he's uh, some of the stuff that yeah. he says. He's a great about, example I'll, of uh, when I had an inmate, uh, not an inmate, I had a client when I was doing community mental health tell me that bipolar disorder is both a blessing and a curse. When you can use your powers for good, uh, it's a blessing. Unfortunately, all too often, those folks that suffer from bipolar disorder use their powers for uh, not so good. <laughs> That's what gets them into trouble. And Dana White is one of those guys who has definitely used his powers 
to make himself successful. But if he's not bipolar, I'll eat my hat. You know, you have brought that particular challenge up more than once the last couple of days. For those of you who don't know, Mr. <laughs> Radlich has claimed, when uh, delving briefly into MMA, the bloody or bloodyelbow.com posted a story about the, a couple of the last UFC pay-per-views, 161 and 163 specifically. Neither of them cracked 200,000 buys which would have been unheard of a couple of years ago. Nowadays, not so uncommon. Your very reasonable response was, none of the big draws have fought yet this year, and certainly not over the last couple of months. We still have John Jones, George St. Pierre, Cain Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos, and Anthony Pettis versus Ben Henderson coming up. Those are the big guns, and you said that if any of those did less than 200,000 buys, you would eat your hat. Yes, sir. So th- this is the second time you have threatened to consume headgear. Now, I have... <laughs> Well-used hats. I will send you one. I'm only worried about Henderson and Pettis because that fight might do less than 200,000 buys just based on history. That's, other than that, I think you're absolutely right. Those will all do very well. That's the only one I think you might be forced to record yourself sautéing and consuming some form of headgear. Here's my defense of that pay-per-view. One, the main card is pretty stacked. You've got Ben Henderson, Anthony Pettis, which has been a fight people have been clamoring for in the MMA community. So I think you're going to get your base – the base will come out for that pay-per-view. On top of that, you've got Josh Barnett, who definitely has some celebrity appeal, and he's fighting Frank Mir, who I think people will pay money to see uh, him tied into knots. Um, I'll pay money to see Frank – look, I would pay cash money if there was like a traffic cam recording of Frank Mir's motorcycle action. Oh, that's not nice. Um, I'm not, you know, I host a villain podcast. I'm not necessarily always a nice person. <laughs> sure, not wish death on people or I don't severe wish death on him. I said I would or... pay money to receive a copy of the tape that shows him in his motorcycle act. <laughs> okay. I don't want I it to happen you... again necessarily. I'm not opposed well, to d- it either. Despite, despite your penchant for snuff, uh, snuff films, <laughs> he doesn't um, die. Uh huh. So you've got you've got Ben Henderson versus Showtime Pettis too, Frank Mir versus Josh Barnett, both of which have a lot of appeal. Chad Mendez versus Clay Guida, who at least people have heard of, and while that might not be tremendously appealing, I think it'll actually be a good fight. Uh, ben Roth, Ben Rothwell, Brandon Vera, and Jeremy Lambert would pay sixty-seven dollars just to watch Brandon Vera and Ben Rothwell fight for twenty-five minutes. Yeah, well, there's a certain segment of the population who's going to watch that one for the sheer uh, shedding fraud of it all. You know, that, that one's going to be a parody of an MMA fight. Um, but I don't think it has Brandon any Vera Brandon Vera is a parody of a human being, so of course he's a parody of an MMA fighter. And then you have Eric Koch and Dustin Poirier. So you really, I mean, when you compare that to the UFC 163 card, it, it was almost a difference. It, it's a night and day. This is your traditional stack pay-per-view card with name people. No, it doesn't have a tremendous amount. It doesn't have all the celebrity appeal of some pay-per-view cards from a few years ago where they really had to trot out um, the best names they had going um, because, they, that, because they were only doing monthly pay-per-views for the most part. So it's a, different, it's a different dynamic here. But still, people have heard of everybody on, this, on the main card, as opposed to UFC 163 where people heard of four of them. Four. Well, so, plus, the UFC I, doesn't seem to know how to properly promote Jose Aldo. No, they do not. So but, having said that, I think this will I, – I, if this doesn't get it – I mean, I know Ben Henderson versus Frankie Edgar um, did not – you know, I think their second fight was 150,000. Uh, and since then, the he's first fight was 150. Their second fight was 135. Yeah, so I know – so 
but you know, my that, opinion, that's Frankie more Frankie Edgar. Edgar. People yeah, don't say, like to I, pay to see Frankie Edgar. It's kind of my yeah, and that was kind of where I was going. My opinion there. I mean, Edgar. His fight you with know, Jose Aldo didn't do too well either. Again, I just don't think people like to. I don't think people want to pay to see Frankie Edgar do anything. Right. I, I think it's. They they knew they were going to get a boring fight, and they did, and that was the end of that. I don't think this one's got that kind of stink on it. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's a minimum of three hundred three hundred thousand, which is greater than two hundred thousand. Bust no hat. Either. All right. Your prediction. That's fair enough. Uh, as for me, got to get my plugs in next week. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Uh, I'm not sure of the day or the time, but next week, Pat Mullen, who's been here plenty of times, will be back. We will be discussing The Sopranos, the greatness of James Gandolfini, and Edie Falco left Oz to become Mrs. Soprano. It's just, And then she left Tony Soprano to become Nurse Jackie. Is Nurse Jackie any good? I've only seen the first episode, and I did kind of enjoy it. But I haven't actually gone out of my way to find it. Uh, I've heard some decent things about it, and Edie Falco is usually worth watching to see if the show sucks or not. My big issue is, again, I'm watching this years later, so seeing her with the late 80s, early 90s hairstyles from Jersey is just kind of killing me. Yeah, that, but, uh, I, I've, I've never really been into the, the whole mafia stuff. Something about my, um, my Italian grandmother insisting there was no such thing as the Italian mafia, and Americans just made it up because we hate Italians. And we hate them more than black people. That was what she told me. And I was not yeah. one. I was I was a good grandson, and I was not one to argue with my Nana, who clearly was insane. But uh, that being said, I've always sort of, aside from, like, the movie Casino, which is awesome, and uh, I've always sort of shied away from the mafia t- uh, movies. you got to see The Godfather. I have seen The Godfather, and I think I've seen The Godfather, too, though I, cl- I couldn't tell you. I know, I know that one of my friends. arguably better than part one. That's what I've heard. Um, I had a friend of mine who, when I told him I've never watched The Godfather and we were in our 20s, was like, we're going to fix this right now because that's insanity. Um, uh, I have a, a friend person. who's a film student and hasn't seen The Godfathers. Yeah, I don't understand how that happens. But um, it's like, you know, being a film person and never having watched The Deer Hunter. It's like, well, come on. That's like film class day one. But um, yeah. regardless, uh, I will sit down. I'm kind of in this thing now where after being – after everyone telling me I should watch Breaking... Well, here's what gets me, and, and let me just say this. Um, the whole reason I started watching Breaking Bad was because everybody and their mother who watched the show kept insisting how great it was and that I was missing out and that because I loved The Wire, I would love Breaking Bad. They specifically said, if you love The Wire, you'll love Breaking Bad. Newsflash, folks, Breaking Bad is nothing like The Wire except in the most superficial ways. And while they deal I deal with drugs. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the similarity. Other than that, you're talking about the difference between an epic opera and a television show. A good television show. One of the best television shows. But The Wire was so wide in scope and deep in theme, you can't, there's, there's no way you can compare the two. Um, and The Wire is infinitely better. Having said that, um, I, I, I kept, I, I, the one thing that kept radiating in my mind about uh, when people would say, well, if you love the Wire, you love Breaking Bad. I'm like, either you don't understand, you never actually saw The Wire and just thought, well, they're both drug shows, you'll like them, or you don't understand The Wire. One of the two. In any case, no. um, I try not to hype a- things up as the best ever because I knew someone who heard so many times that The Godfather was the greatest movie ever that when he actually saw it, he was let down. So yeah, I personally tend to be very careful overhyping things. Well, the, the point as, that I was getting know, to was I, I ended up really enjoying Breaking Bad to the point where I want to do uh, a show on it myself. Um, and, I, and I'm really, and I'm all, you know, I'm very into 
where we are now with Breaking Bad. It took a little time to get there, especially after season one. But, you know, nonetheless. Hey, that show doesn't good I, I like season one for what it is. It's the introduction. It's getting things rolling. Two kind of falls flat until you I – mean, I think that show doesn't really gain steam. I mean, it's great to watch Brian – it's the Brian Cranston show until Gus Fring shows up. Is just kind of my yeah. opinion of well, and Gus Fring is on Yes, he is, including when he has half his face blown off and he adjusts his tie. But um, what I wanted to say was, in my in 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 having watching Breaking Bad and doing some research on it, I keep seeing these articles that say, you know, the four best shows ever in the history of television: The Wire, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and The Sopranos. I'm probably not going to watch uh, Mad Men, but considering I've never seen it comparing The Sopranos to The Wire and Breaking Bad, I was like, well, if I feel the way I do about these shows, I might as well give The Sopranos a try. That was a long way to go to get there, but yeah, I'm going to eventually watch The Sopranos because comparing it to The Wire and Breaking Bad. It's not (laughs) the same in that, you know, I mean, yes, it's a crime show, but these are all very different in execution and in theme. From what I've seen so far, and again, I'm aware of what happens. I haven't actually seen the entire thing start to finish, which is why I'm so aggravated with Tony Soprano's mother. Oh, I wish God would. T- I wish the good Lord would take me. I want someone to pull out a gun and say, "Fine, shut up about it." Well, I was telling my friend that I said, you know, I said for the first couple of seasons of Breaking Bad, all they wanted was for Omar to sh- from the to, sh- to get off a bus from Baltimore in the middle of New Mexico and shoot Jesse White in the kneecaps. Oh, you mean Jesse Pinkman? Yes, Jesse Pinkman. But uh, I tell you, you know, as, as great as Brian Cranston is with that show, Aaron Paul more than holds his own, and I have to give. Um, R.J. Mitty, who plays Walter Jr., uh, does a great job. Uh, he actually does have MS and had to. Re- and he's he, he's more high functioning than his character, so he regressed a little bit for that character. But actually, does have MS and does a really good job as far as the acting within that series. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone acts their part very well. I don't necessarily like their characters, but they all do. They all put on phenomenal performances. That's because you know, said, not every not every person is likable. <laughs> kind of how that Jesse goes. Jesse Pinkman, a little. Jesse Pinkman is a little too light in the ass for me. Oh, come on, bitch. Yo, man, come on. We, we got to... I, I, I feel so bad for Aaron Paul. Omar. Because you have you have to imagine that people come up to him in everyday life. And they're like, yo, bitch, how's it going? <laughs> All, right. All right, we could be here for another hour talking about this. End your damn show yes, already. Yes, we could. So let me finish my plugs. Uh, next week, I'll have Pat Mullen on. We're talking The Sopranos. Week after that is either The Shield or The Wire is kind of how I want to go with that, unless everyone flakes out and I can only get Samer, in which case it'll be Dexter. Also very good. This week, Locked in the Guillotine, my special 100th episode, 100th edition of Locked in the Guillotine, is up uh, tomorrow, well, Friday. I get, I will be reviewing the last UFC fight card, the downfall of Shogun, and Fighters Don't Train Cardio. I will be previewing the card I will actually be covering, the next UFC on Fox Sports event, headlined by Carlos Condit taking on Martin Campman. Because my show, because my column comes out on Friday, I will be reviewing uh, next week. I will be reviewing Condit versus Campman and previewing UFC 164 Henderson versus Pettis. So yay for yay for my weekly positioning. That'll all be fun. As Mark mentioned, I'll be on the 411 Ground and Pound show this coming Sunday. We're back at our regular time, I believe, of 9 p.m. Eastern. We went on at 11 p.m. Eastern last week, so as not to compete with WWE SummerSlam which wound up being a huge disappointment in many ways. A couple of great matches. Look, I freely admit my personal bias against Randy Orton plays a huge role in my view of that. I have never liked Randy Orton, ever. 
There is one match of his that I've enjoyed. One. You can count it. It's his match with Mick Foley at Backlash. And part of that is because I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of Mick Foley. That match I can watch and enjoy. Everything else ever about him bores me to tears. And this is no different. But So my personal bias plays a huge role in that. And I'll freely admit it. But we are a regular time next week, or coming this coming Sunday. Yes, sir. Okay. So don't want to misinform my listeners. I will be on that. My column, again, this Friday, my 100th episode. I'm kind of happy about that. Yay me. I made it to 100. Hoping for 200 more since no one else has contacted me about writing for them. Hint, hint, <laughs> hint. Uh, just kidding. Trying to so that we'll... Job with. <laughs> but that does it for this edition of Oz. The epic countdown to the end of Breaking Bad will continue next week. Finding the Sopranos with Pat Mullen. And i got to get the last verse of When You're Evil to play as my outro. But in absence of that... Ladies and gentlemen, of course, I'll leave you with the famous line from Scarface. So say goodnight to the bad guys.